0: So I walk in the locker room and Mark Freer, a forward on our team is sitting on the training table getting his knee looked at. I go, hey, what's wrong with you? He goes, oh, I can't go. I twisted my knee in warmups. I go, what? So now, so I realized now I got to play right. And I'm not ready. So I go, I go into the bathroom. I used to have this like 25, 30 minute mental preparation routine. I did it all the time. When I've got to do that in five minutes. So I did, I sat there, I went, I went to an abbreviated version of my, of my mental prep routine. So I'm in my stall now and Terry walks in. Hey, Graham, you're playing tonight. I said, yeah, no kidding, Terry. Thanks a lot. So then I, I get out there for the first period. I, I get one shift the entire period and I scored, right? So I come back to the bench and his jaws like this. He's like, I go, I told you. And I sat down. So then he, then the second period, he gives me another shift. I score again, third period. I didn't get anything. So this went on for three games. I had five goals in three games, getting about three shifts a game. Right. And, uh, so, we so finally he calls me to his office after the uh the fifth game. He says, I gotta talk to you. I'm oh, sorry, the third game. I talked to you, and he says, Um, you're making me look like an idiot. I, I go, you, I said, Yeah, you look pretty stupid, man. I, I'm, I'm getting three shifts a game, and I've got, I've got five goals in three games. How's that feel? And he, he looks at I said, You know what, Terry, remember I told you I was gonna get 20? He goes, Yeah, I said, Well, listen, you should keep playing me the way you are right now because I think I'm gonna change my mind. I think I'm gonna get 30 instead. And he looks, I said, Yeah, I'm telling you. You're not going to stop me. I told you this weeks ago.
1: That was Graham Townsend, former member of the New York Islanders, Ottawa Senators, and Boston Bruins, and you are listening to the Up My Hockey podcast with Jason Podolin. Welcome to Up My Hockey with Jason Podolin, where we deconstruct the NHL journey, discuss what it takes to make it, and have a few laughs along the way. I'm your host, Jason Podolin, a 31st overall draft pick who played 41 NHL games, but thought he was destined for a thousand. Learn from my story and those of my guests. This is a hockey podcast about reaching your potential. Hey there, welcome back to another episode of Up My Hockey with Jason Podolin. I am Jason Podolin, and today you are here for episode number 83. And episode 83 has an amazing guest by the name of Graham Townsend. Uh, That name might not be super familiar uh, to a lot of you. He wasn't an NHL star. Uh, He played 45 games in the NHL. But one of the things that is a claim to Graham Townsend's fame is that he is the first ever, was the first ever, Jamaican-born player to play in the NHL. Uh, Graham did move from Jamaica when he was three uh, to the Toronto area, and that's where he grew up. Uh, but his, uh, his story, his path, and, uh, and what it took for him to get those 45 NHL games and to be an NHL uh, player and a pro player, uh, also to get into coaching afterwards, had a lot to do with his mental approach, with his mindset, with his way of being able to handle adversity. Um, whether that be from a coach or whether that be from teammates or whether that be from the environment, he was always able to persevere and, and to push through. Uh, it was, I, I, There's so many great stories here. Graham is a great guy. We ended up uh, first meeting at an NHL alumni event. It was a speaking event to learn how to uh, public speak better. And, and so Graham was there and I was there. I got to know Graham there. Uh, that was probably five, six years ago now. And then just recently on my New York Islanders alumni trip out to Long Island Graham was there one of the one of the teams Graham played for was the Islanders uh so we ended up reconnecting there I had a really good talk about what he's doing now uh, with as far as his hockey camp's concerned and his development of youth athletes um I shared with him what I'm doing, uh, also helping youth athletes in the mindset way. We, all, we found that we had a lot of synergies, and I was like, you know what, Graham, your story is amazing. Uh, what you do now is amazing. Let's get you on the pod. Uh, so he was kind enough to come. And he broke a record, by the way, uh, for a pod, which we joke about during the conversation. I believe it was 25 minutes Graham speaks right, relatively at the beginning of the podcast straight without me saying a word. So I think he took over Terry Ryan's previous record, and uh, so Graham is now in the uh, uh, Up My Hockey uh, podcast Hall of Fame for uh, for longest for longest uh, uh, time on mic being uninterrupted. Now he has tons of great stories. You're going to hear a lot of good ones. I love his I love his story about Boris, the one when he was an RPI uh, at this tournament. You will not believe what happened there at the hotel room situation. Um, we touch on a lot of things here. We touch on race. Uh, Graham is a black hockey player, uh, was a black hockey player, and uh, and so he grew up in that environment. He sees it now as a coach. Uh, we, we, we cover that topic. Uh, we, cover, we cover the road to the NHL. We cover mindset. We cover um, a lot of things in this pod. We think we talked for about 90 minutes, and I really think you're going to enjoy Graham and his stories. So, Without further ado, I bring you Graham Townsend, episode 83 of the Up My Hockey Podcast. All right, Mr. Graham Townsend,
0: welcome to the Up My Hockey
1: podcast.
0: Thanks a lot, Jason. Uh, thanks for having me.
1: No worries, man. Uh, I'm glad we could figure it out. We, we had a little bit of tr- trouble there with the uh, with the old phone, with the Android, but we're on a computer now and uh, life is good.
0: Yeah, I'm not a, I'm not a big computer guy, but uh, I'm glad my wife was able to help me figure this out. So <laughs> It's just actually much better than being on a phone, so I'm look, looking forward to this. Fantastic.
1: Uh, So I had done the introduction beforehand, um, but uh, just for a little bit of recap, uh, we go, we met originally uh, at the NHL alumni um, Jeepers, what was it called? Like speaking for success or something like that? That's right. Yeah, that's, that's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um,
0: we, we, we did a seminar or a, a training session down there on how to do public speaking and whatnot. So
1: Yeah, exactly. Right. So we, uh, which was fantastic. Actually, that was the first thing that I kind of, I was involved with the alumni. I wasn't really a registered member and then I became that and I saw that they had all these cool programs. And uh, and that was something that I, I definitely wanted to be, uh, to be better at. So down I flew there. I think we were in, where were we in Philadelphia?
0: Yeah, just outside of Philly. Um. Uh, actually, I think we were over in Delaware, wasn't it? Yeah. It was very close to Philadelphia.
1: Yeah, anyways, yeah. So we we spent a couple days together, got to know you there, and then uh, we just got back from our alumni Islanders alumni trip, and uh, and reconnected there again. And and I thought that your story, uh, well, you have a great story. You know, I mean, and what you're doing now, and, and, and you know, I mean, helping other people reach their dreams and goals, and you know, you're you're inspired to do that is really in line uh, with what I like to do. So I thought, geez, let's have a conversation about about your your past and your journey, because that's what it's all about here, not my hockey. I know there's going to be lots of lessons for, uh, for my audience. So once again, thanks for joining. And, um, and I really appreciate
0: you you taking the time today. Well, hey, thanks for having me again. I'm looking forward to this. Um, Yeah. I'm always, always looking to try to uh, do what I can to, to pay it forward, to give back to the game in my own way and, i was I was very, I mean I look back on my life and I can't believe the um, great fortune that I had and the, and just just the people that came into my life. Um, the coaches I had. I look I, I hear the stories of a lot of the kids that play for me now and hear about the, the coaches that they have, the horror shows that they have as coaches. and i I never had any of those experiences at all until I got to college. So I had I was I, I got through youth hockey um, completely unscathed and uh, had just great, real, great role models. And uh, they all took me under their wing and treated me like their like their own child, you know, because I was I was pretty much, for all intents and purposes, fatherless. My dad left when I was ten years old, and so it kind of left me to be the, the, quote unquote man of the house, and that was tough being a ten year old kid and having to, having to shoulder that responsibility. I had two younger siblings, um, a younger brother who's two years younger than me, and my sister who's seven years younger. So, it was it was really difficult. But then these gentlemen uh, came into my life. Um, you know, I think of Mr. Earl Perry from Toronto. He he really did treat me like his own son, even though his son was on the team. Mr. Perry included me in a lot of a lot of family events and things of that nature, and and just really made me feel comfortable and feel part of part of something bigger than myself. Right. Well, I
1: mean, before we even get into you, because I, I mean, and I want to do that, but you already brought up a, a topic that's near and dear to me, which which is coaching. I know you're involved in it now, and. Uh, and we both feel quite strongly about you know how impactful that role can be. Uh, we've seen it firsthand. Now, I work with clients that are dealing, as you said, in some, some have come across your path uh, with coaches or coaching situations or environments uh, that aren't maybe the best fit or or conducive to to that individual player uh, being their best. Uh, how do you handle that in 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 those situations? Meaning balancing. The accountability that I feel there is accountability to the player in the relationship, you know, that they have to go to bat and they have to find a way to figure it out. Um, and then also just being in a toxic environment. Like, how do you how do you manage that with the people that you that come across your path?
0: It's it's a, it's it's really a balancing act, really. Honestly, like, you, you know, the question is, 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 a, is a pertinent question. Um I think I look at each each player as an individual and I and I try to determine what what that individual wants out of hockey. I always ask my my players and all my students, you know, what I ask them first what they want out of life. Um so if hockey were to end right now, what would you want to be type of thing. And then I then I ask the hockey question because honestly I think that um hockey is secondary for for me honestly hockey has grew into something that I use as a means to an end when I was 14, I decided I wanted to get a scholarship because I, I discovered that um, you could get a, a scholarship and have your education paid for just because you could play hockey. And I thought that was amazing. So I decided to, to go for that. So I, I look for what they want first. And I often sit down with the parents. I want the parents involved um, because they're a big part of it, obviously. And so um, if, if the behavior doesn't match the goals and I remind my students, and listen, you said you want to do this and this and things have changed. Let's Let's just take another another path. Um, But either way, I don't care whether they want to play hockey or if they decide suddenly they want to be a pianist or whatever. I'd be willing to help them do that. You know, um, I had a kid one time, Jason. I remember this vividly. He um, was coming to my camp every summer. My camp's very it's an expensive camp. It's a big big ask for parents. And I noticed that he was one day after dinner, he was just sort of sitting alone, looking sad. And then I went up and asked him what was going on, and then I asked him the big question because um his his behavior at camp over the years didn't really match the um the level of the kids that was there so I, I asked him if um if his parents were forcing him to come to my camp um, and I said listen I, I got your back if that's true. if they're forcing you I'll help you with this I'll help you um get out of this and he and I just said um, you know, or, or I said or maybe hockey's not your thing maybe um you've got you've got something else you you have a passion for and at the time my sister was there she's a filmmaker and she was doing some video to put on my website for me and I just threw it out there said "Well, maybe you want to be a filmmaker like my sister and all of a sudden his eyes lit up like this and I said is that what you want to do and he goes yeah I love filmmaking I said oh no way I said okay well I've got about five snippets of video from, collected from over the years and I was looking I've been looking for someone to edit these videos together with some really cool music so I could put it on my website I said if you do that for me I'll give you I'll give you 300 bucks and two days later he had the video produced uh, with the awesome music and it was amazing and uh he quit hockey and got into filmmaking <laughs> so i mean that that's a win that's a huge win um and and, and hockey hockey was a means to an end right he, he through hockey he came to our camp he met me and some other people and um through some conversations, he was placed on the on the path that he wanted to be on and and now you know he's doing really well he's in film school and uh everything's good so we're really proud those are the stories that i'm most proud of i'm actually more proud of that than i am of someone who made it the nhl because you know this kid this kid uh, took a huge risk it was a big deal for him to quit hockey and and um you know go against what his parents wanted and um and then thankfully they did support him and he's doing really well so i'm very very proud of that young gentleman
1: that's awesome that's a great story um With the role of coaches, just back to that. Back back to that other question I was saying. So like, and now I'm I'm speaking like as a first person, as as a player, because I think you must have been there as well. I know I have been there with, in an environment you're on a team, and there's a coach that you're not jiving with. Now there's been times where where I feel that I was a part of that um, relationship. You know that I that I played a part in 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 the negativity that was surrounding that. And then there's also been times where it was just looking back just a bad environment like I wasn't his guy or the guy and you know is really not helping me at all so no matter how I showed up it maybe wasn't going to work out uh what like what do you have with that with those experiences and then when, when people come to me like that is one of the big issues for players is how to navigate these environments and do they quit and find somewhere else or do they try and navigate within you know so it, can you shed some light on that just maybe from a personal level or, or, or from a from a coaching standpoint now when you have players come through your door?
0: Absolutely. Um, I can think of I can think of um from, for me it was a, a long maturation process. Um I can tell you first of all how it started and then how it how it ended, okay, how I how I how I survived it. So I had these great guys coming up through my my youth hockey in Toronto, and then I get to junior hockey. I have a great junior coach, guy that really believed in me. And um, and actually he was the first person, well the second person, I should say the second person who convinced me that I had the potential to be a professional because he played, he played in the NHL a little bit. And, um, and I remember when he told me that it meant the world to me to have his, his name is Mike Dwyer. And uh, it meant the world to me to have Mike Dwyer tell me that I had NHL potential. That's when I started to really believe it. I was 19 years old. Then I got to college and I had a coach who was, really, I, I, to, to, to say the least, he was very difficult. I'll tell you what happened. Um, So I had, a, I really struggled my freshman year adjusting to college hockey and um i remember one day we were playing in the great lakes tournament in detroit so this is a big deal You had michigan state there michigan uh northern michigan and us i was at rpi and rpi was the defending national champion so i was coming into a school to a program that had won the national championship the year before and i was their top recruit so there's a lot of uh a lot of um media attention that i wasn't accustomed to and i really struggled And i'm not using that as an excuse but that's just the, that's just the facts so we had a, we had at the Great Lakes tournament. The coach hated me. The coach couldn't stand me. He told me several times. Now I had 15 scholarship offers. Okay, so I was an, at the time I was a number one recruited forward in the country, and so he told me uh, that I was the biggest recruiting mistake in the nation, and I, that just crushed me. So we get to Detroit, and um, we get to the, the Renaissance Center. So this is a, this is a nice hotel, nicest hotel I'd ever seen up to up to that point. And he's handing out the keys for the rooms, Or to, you know, pairs of guys. So, say, you know, he'd say, Jason and Bob, here you go, here's your, here's your key. So all the keys were handed out, and there's four of us standing there with no key. So he looked at us, and sort of a matter of fact, he acted like he'd, he'd forgotten we were there. And he says, oh, yeah, you guys are going with Coach Peters. So we looked up Coach Peters. He said, he had a minivan. He throws in the minivan. We drove about 30 minutes out of town in a snowstorm. And then he pulled up to this Holiday Inn. <laughs> he goes, was you four guys are staying in here. Um, the, your keys will be at the front desk So we, we go to the, the Holiday Inn front desk and there's one room for four guys, two beds, right? So we cram in there and uh, Coach Peter says, I'll be back tomorrow at 9 to pick you up for practice. So he comes and gets us. We go to the Joe Luce Arena, we practice. And so we're expecting to go back to the hotel, the uh, the Holiday Inn. He says, no, no, we're going to the Renaissance Center. So we're thinking, oh, good, we're going to move to the Renaissance Center. Nope. Uh, there was a, this huge concourse, so the lobby was huge and there are these elevators, right? And there's a, a, um, some chairs set up in front of the elevators, like like for a meeting. So there's all these rows of chairs. And then there's three separate chairs in the front of those rows right in front of the elevators. And he told me and two other guys to sit there. So now we're sitting in the lobby of the Renaissance Center. You know, as you can imagine, there's other players from other teams going up and down the elevators and do, you know going about their day. And this coach is just ripping into the three of us. He's basically telling us we suck. We should quit hockey. We're not good enough to play at RPI, blah, blah, blah. And back then, you could actually transfer without having to sit out a year. And so one of the guys, actually, after the coach told us we should quit, he actually did quit. He went up to, to the Northern Michigan coach because he was recruited by them two years previously. And he ended up going into the RPI, his room, grabbed his bags, and he went up, up to a Northern Michigan room in the hotel. And he he couldn't play with them right away, but he, he's, he left. Now, for whatever reason, I decided to suck it up and stay there. I don't know what why I did that because Michigan was there and Michigan State was there. They both recruited me. I probably could have transferred to one of those schools, but I chose to stay at RPI, and I guess because I'm very stubborn. So my sophomore year starts. I finally become a good college player. I'm having a great sophomore year, and all of a sudden, Jason, he makes me a defenseman. I'm a forward, right? So um, I ended up – I was the worst defenseman in the league. I was terrible, and he wanted me to play D because I had a good shot and I could, you know, for the power play and whatnot. So that's that's why he put me there. So then finally, I, I, I go to my mentor. I, I learn how to play D the next summer, and I go back to RPI, and I'm one of the best defensemen in the league now all of a sudden. And, and lo and behold, you won't believe it, the guy that tried to get me to quit a year and a half before made me one of the captains. So go figure that one out. So now the season ends. I'm, I'm, a, I'm going into my senior year. I'm undrafted. Um, I had a really good junior year. And uh, the coach wants to see me in his office one day. I said, all right, fine. I'll go over to his office. And he says, "What do you want to do with your life, Graham?" And I hated talking to this guy. I, I, I was trying to figure out how to get out of this office, and so I was, I was, gonna, I'm going to tell him what he wants to hear, and maybe he'll let me go. So I said, "Okay, coach, I, I want to get my degree." And he was really about school, and he loved to hear that stuff. So I just threw that at him, and I thought, I, and I started to leave. He goes, "Oh no, no, no! What else? What else?" I said, "Um, all right, I'll, I'll be honest with you. I want to play in the NHL." He goes, "Nope, that'll never happen. You're not good enough." He goes, "In fact, when pro scouts asked me about you, I tell them you suck." I go, "Okay, cool." And uh, so I said, "Can I go now?" He goes, "Yeah." So I left. So I, I'm walking across the street, and I'm bawling my eyes out. So I'm thinking, "Okay, the coach is telling everybody that I, that I suck at hockey, and how am I going to play pro if this coach is is, is uh, sandbagging me?" So I called my dad, called my family, said, "Okay, I'm going to quit hockey. I'm going to go in my senior year. I'm going to focus on school because I want to be a chiropractor and I going to get my grades up so I can get into chiropractic school." And um, I called my mentor and told him that I'm not playing hockey anymore. I'm going to go. I'm just not, I'm going to go to tryouts next year. I'm not going to try. Hopefully I'll get cut. I have, I have a scholarship that's guaranteed. They can't take the money away. So I I was going to just do that. And, um, he, my mentor had me talk to a scout from, from the New Jersey Devils. His name is Tim Burke, who actually was at Princeton during my recruiting year and tried really hard to get me into Princeton. And for whatever reason, this guy, Tim liked me. And, uh, he shows up to the summer camp. I decided to work the summer camp because um, I promised to be an instructor. And I didn't wanna leave Mr. Vincent, my mentor, high and dry without without enough instructors for his hockey school. So, so I told Mr. V, I said, listen, I'm not, I'm not gonna train this summer. I'm gonna go out to the bars with all the other college guys and have a great time. Cause I, I never did any of that stuff when I was in school. I just, I, I was Mr. Straight and Narrow. I didn't party, nothing like that. But now if I'm not playing hockey, I'm gonna have at least one good year fun in college and enjoy the whole college experience. So so I told him that. And um, so Mr. Mr. Burke comes up and says, I want to talk to you. So we went for a walk. And it was on Cape Cod. We we're going for a walk. And he says, uh, I heard you're quitting hockey. I go, yep, that's right. He says, why is that? I said, well, I don't get along with my coach. And I didn't want to get into all the details. And he goes, yeah, I heard, I heard you don't get along with him. And he says, you know, um, I, I said, yeah, he told me he's going to tell all you scouts that I suck at hockey. And he goes, well, he does tell me you suck. I said, "See, there you go. So why should I bother?" I mean, if, if and he says, "Well, Graham, you don't you don't seem to understand the scouting process." I said, "Well, like, well, why don't you explain it to me?" He says, "We as scouts, we don't we don't respect a coach's opinion on a player." I said, "He goes, we we have eyes. We can see who's good and who's not. Um, I don't need your coach to tell me who can play hockey and who can't play hockey. I, I just want to know if you're a good person or not. If you're a good character guy, and your coach thinks you're a great character guy, and he says nothing but good things about you. He just doesn't think you can play." But uh, that's not going to affect your position next year. He says, he says I guarantee you someone's going someone's to sign you. I'll never forget that. And I said, he says, I guarantee you. There's no way all 21 NHL teams will pass you up. I said, okay. He goes, he goes go back to school. Have a good year. Stay out of trouble because you have to play. If you don't play, then you're screwed. So I went back. I'm having a great senior year. And uh, wouldn't you know it, uh, we were playing Brown University. I scored the game-winning goal. And um, so I so like what the way things worked at RPI it didn't matter whether we won or lost the game didn't make a difference if we played well or, or if we played poorly. He would sit there in the locker room and he'd go he'd go man for man. And just tell you what he thought about your performance. We'd sit there for half an hour waiting for him to, to go through all 20 guys and tell him you sucked. You op- if a guy didn't play, you did a terrible job opening the gate tonight. You know, one guy tripped and you you suck at opening the gate. You know, he, I swear to God, he'd say these things. And so I I come in after being interviewed because I got I got a star of the game or whatever, and um, I come in come in and he's in he's in his middle of his tirade. So this is my fourth year. I'm so used to this garbage. I just sat down in my stall, had all my gear on still. I've got my hockey stick in my hand, and he's going around. I'm number 12. He starts with number one and works his way all the way around to the last guy. So he gets to me, number 12, and uh, I remember thinking to myself, you know, I just got the game-winning goal, so I can't wait to hear what this jackass is going to say to me. So he (laughs) looks at me, and he he, he hesitated, because he usually fired fired off his comments really quick, right? And all of a sudden, he stops and looks at me, and he says, Townsend, what I saw between you and Bruce Coles after you scored that goal made me sick to my stomach. Now, Bruce Coles is the other black kid on the team. He was my roommate, and by the way, the coach made him move in with me because Bruce was sort of a wayward guy, and um, I was responsible for straightening Bruce out and, and, you know, bringing him into the fold type of thing, being a, you know yeah. take him under my wing. So yep. he told he told me to make he told me to move Bruce into my place. So I did. So he says, um, uh, he goes, "I've been watching you two a lot lately, and you've been spending a lot of time together. Now, this guy told me I want you eating breakfast with Bruce." lunch with bruce and dinner with bruce i want everywhere you go i want him to go he told me to do that so of course dummy we're going to be spending a lot of time together because you told me to do it so i remember when he said that i thought to myself what an idiot he told me to hang with this guy <laughs> and now he's complaining about it i mean i'm serious this is this you can't you can't make this stuff up it's hilarious so then he says to me um he goes uh i've been you guys have spending spending a lot of time together And uh, instead of you two guys getting together and calling the NAACP and reporting the rest of us, you ought to bloody his nose. Now, I'll tell you, I'm not not dumb, but I'm not the smartest guy in the world. And I thought he said NCAA. I'm thinking to myself, what the heck's the NCAA got to do with me hanging out with Bruce Coles? And then I realized, oh, no, he said the NAACP. Oh, oh, I get it. He's trying to say the two black guys are forging a bond against the rest of the white kids. That's what he's trying to say. I I was like, this guy is insane. So then he says to me, Um, if you don't stop acting like an N, I will start treating you like one. Now, now that that was a magic word for me. I'm a pretty nice guy until you say you call me that name and um or even insinuate or even use that word around me. It, It drives me crazy. So I remember, okay, Tim Burke's words, stay out of trouble. Well, normally um, when someone called me that back in those days. Um, especially if I had a hockey stick in my hand, there would be a really serious incident. <laughs> it would get extremely violent. And so I'm, I got, I have my stick in my hand and my first thought was to go after this guy. And I thought, and then I heard Tim's words, well, smacking your coach with a hockey stick. It's probably, it probably constitutes getting in trouble. And just imagine if I did that, not one NHL team would have touched me. So I decided to hold my tongue and, and stay in my seat. And uh, as soon as he said the words, you could, you could see the reaction on his face. He realized, oh, I screwed this up. And he went to the next guy and finished his thing. So I, I went into his office after the game, after I got dressed. And I said, Coach, I need to speak with you. And he said, well, uh, you know, I'm talking to the media. I'll, I'll get to you later. I said, all right, fine. So I waited for about two hours in the lobby. And um, he tried to sneak out of his office. I saw him sneaking away. And I poked my head around a corner and saw the guy sneaking out the back door. And I said, coach, uh, you have time to talk now. And he looked at me all shocked. He didn't, I guess he thought I would have left because it was two hours. And so uh, we sat in his office and I just said, listen, um, um, I don't know what you think you see between me and Bruce, but you're the one that told me to move in with him. So obviously I will be hanging with him, but since you don't want me to anymore, I'll stop doing it right away. And I said, now another thing, um, don't ever use that word around me ever again. And so he, he didn't apologize. He sort of backpedaled and made an excuse for why he used the word. And I said, listen, he said he's trying to motivate me. I said, look, you're a very intelligent man. I said, uh, you can think of a better way to motivate me. But I'm telling you, don't ever call me that again, ever. And that was it. So long story short, it got out. Um, he, he, he was coaching a team where there were 20 guys that hated him. And he said that word to me in front of 20 people. And so a couple of my teammates ratted him out to the school. And uh, long story short, he had to resign. So that, so that's how, I, so that's kind of how, um, that that's how I learned to handle a person like him. So years later, when I got to the pros, there wasn't one single coach in professional hockey that could match this guy. Like a lot of these guys, when they when they when they when they try to be tough or whatever, I kind of laugh because I'm thinking, geez, you have no idea who I just dealt with for the past four years. This is nothing. So along comes um, um, a, a coach. I guess I can say his name. It's not a big deal. His name is Terry Ruskowski. And I'm near the end of my career, and Terry wants me to fight a lot, and I just don't feel like fighting anymore, you know? So I could tell he didn't like the way I played. And I, I scored 19 goals for him one year in Houston, and I was the assistant captain. So the next year rolls around, and um, it's the end of training camp. And Terry p- calls me in his office. So I have, I think we played eight preseason games. I must have had about six goals. The weird thing was in hockey, didn't matter how well I did. If people wanted me to be a, t- a tough guy, and because I wasn't, um, it didn't matter. I could score twenty. I could score fifty goals, and 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 I'd I'd be sitting. It was crazy. I remember um, I was I was one of the leading scorers of our team, and then suddenly I'm 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 off the second line. I'm now I'm a tenth forward, and I'm one of the top scorers. Okay, so like that's that's crap I had to deal with. So so I've got six goals in eight eight preseason games, and Terry pulls me in his office and he says, Yeah, you're, you're, I'm taking your letter away. I go, Oh yeah, why is that? well, you're not going to play much this year. And, you know, it doesn't make sense to have one of our captains sitting in the in the press box. I go, oh, yeah, why am I not playing? He goes, well, you had a terrible training camp. I go, really? I said, I've got six goals in eight games. What the hell are you talking about? He goes, well, you scored most of those goals the first few games. I said, I don't care, Terry. Six goals is six goals. And he goes, well, you're not going to play. I said, okay, fine. I go, look. I said, I don't really care what you think or what you say, Terry. But at the end of this season, no matter what you do, I'm going to have 20 goals and he looks at me, you know, I'm obviously I know what he's thinking like how are you going to score if you're sitting in the stands, but this guy doesn't realize who he's dealing with. Okay. Like I I've got, I have a lot of confidence. I'm serious. I really do. And I don't know. I didn't know exactly how I was going to do, but I'm getting 20 goals and this guy's not stopping me. And I really believed it. So swear, swear to God. So three weeks went by, I didn't play a single game. And now I'm getting really mad. Like I'm getting angry. And I had this thing about coaches. If you didn't have the courage to look me in the face and tell me I wasn't playing, because you know, some coaches will send the stick boy to go tell you you're not playing. You know, well, I, I don't let them do that. Like, I'll go to his office and, and I, if the stick boy comes to me, I'll go, no, no, no. I'll go to his office and I'll look him right in the face. Hey, am I playing or not? And uh, I, I've done that many times. And <laughs> you can just, just see him squirm. Oh, well, uh, well, okay. Yeah, I guess you're not playing. So Terry didn't want to tell me I wasn't playing on this. We we're going to Milwaukee for this road trip. So I said, you know what? We have to take a bus from the the practice rink to the airport in Houston, and then hop on the plane and whatnot. So I decided to hop on the bus. Had all my stuff with me, and I figured he's going to get on the bus. He's going to see me, and then he'll grow a pair and say, "Okay, you're not playing." I get off the because I didn't want to go to Milwaukee if I'm not playing. I don't. I didn't want to go on the road trip. I had a pool in my backyard, and it's Houston, Texas. I'd rather be in the pool with a beer, maybe listen to the game on the radio or something. But anyway, I get on the bus, and he looks at me. And you can see that he he goes blank. He realizes, oh, shoot, I forgot to tell him. And he didn't tell me. So I'm sitting there going, like I waved to him too, like this. And he didn't do anything. (laughs) So I'm thinking, is this this jerk going to make me drive 45 minutes to the airport then take a taxi back home? Because if that happens, I'm not going to be happy. So I get up to the airport, and he still hasn't said a word to me. The trainer's handing out the per diem envelopes, which are already pre-sorted. So obviously mine's not going to be there because I wasn't supposed to be on the road trip. And I said, Jerry... My money won't be there. You need to take that team's credit card over there and see that ATM. Go get me a hundred bucks. Let's go. Chop chop. So he gives me a hundred (laughs) bucks. And now he's handing out the boarding passes because we flew commercial, right? I said, Jerry, go get me a ticket, man. So he goes, that's the trainer. He goes and gets me a ticket. So we get to Milwaukee finally. The power is out in the city. There's a big windstorm. There's no power. So we can't even have a pregame meal because the hotel is everything's everything's out. So I'm not playing anyway, so I don't I don't care about my pregame meal. I grabbed a a turkey sandwich or something. So now we got to walk up walk up the stairs to get to our rooms because the elevators aren't working because of the power. So so imagine it's a pitch black staircase and there's 20 20 guys walking up the staircase. I think Terry was somewhere in on the staircase too, and I'm just cursing and I'm just losing my mind. I can't believe I'm here. I gotta come to. I'm, I'm just. Just the worst, worst attitude you've ever seen in your life. <laughs> finally, get into the room. I'm rooming with the captain, Curtis Hunt. And I'm just, I'm just griping the whole time. I can't believe this a-hole is making me come. So finally, Hunt, Hunt goes, listen, Tony, will you quit your bitching, please? He goes, just go, just get dressed for, for warm up and just get ready to play just in case. So I said, yeah, okay, time to be professional now. Okay, you're right. So I, I decided to calm down and I get to the rink. I'm warming up. Back in those days, it was a 20-minute warm-up. I used to take the entire 20 minutes to get prepared. But since I'm not playing, I decided to bugger off at, at, at the 10-minute mark. And I'm still bitter. So I walk in the locker room, and Mark Freer, an, a forward on our team, is sitting on the training table getting his knee looked at. And I go, "Hey, what's wrong with you?" He goes, "Oh, I can't go. I twisted my knee in warm-ups." I go, "What?" So now, so I realize now I got to play right, and I'm not ready. So I go, I go into the bathroom. I used to have this like 25-30-minute mental preparation routine. I did it all the time. When i've got to do that in five minutes so i did i sat there i, did, I went i went through I did a, a, a abbreviated version of my of my mental prep routine so i'm in my stall now and terry walks in hey graham you're playing tonight i said yeah no kidding terry thanks a lot so then i, I get out there for the first period I, I get one shift the entire period and i scored right so i come back to the bench and his jaw's like this he's like i go i told you and i sat down so then he then the second period he gives me another shift i score again Third period I didn't get anything. So this went on for three games. I had five goals in three games, getting about three shifts a game, right? And uh, so we so finally calls me to his office after the uh the fifth game. He says, I gotta talk to you. I'm oh, sorry, the third game. I talked to you. And he says, Um, you're making me look like an idiot. I, I go, I said, Yeah, you look pretty stupid, man. I, I'm I'm getting three shifts a game. I've got I've got five goals in three games. How's that feel? And he, he looks at, I said, You know what, Terry? Remember, I told you I was gonna get 20. He goes, Yeah. I said, well, listen, you should keep playing me the way you are right now because I think I'm going to change my mind. I think I'm going to get 30 instead. And he looked, I said, yeah, I'm telling you, you're not going to stop me. I told you this weeks ago. And so, so you know, luckily he got fired later on, right, not too long after that. So Dave Tippett took over as the head coach. And so the last game of the year, um, in the third period, last game of the season, I'm in the upper slot, puck's coming to me, but it's kind of rolling. So I get some wood on it, not much, but the thing you could you could actually sit there it was going in, it was going towards the net so slow. It was one of those little flippers, you know, Cooper Black, Cooper Black. And and I'm watching the puck going to, going to the top corner and I'm laughing because I, I could have had a coffee, a beer, and a sandwich. It took so long to get to the net. And I'm, I said to myself, Holy smokes, man, I'm gonna get my 21st goal, Terry. <laughs> and I remember when it, went, when it went in, I gave the I gave the sky the middle finger. 21, just for you, big guy. And so it, was, it made me laugh because, um, you know, I, I told this guy I was gonna score 20, and um, he didn't believe me. But that's how I handle guys like that. You you have to go in there with a ton of confidence. Um, you can't let them shake you. And I I, I guess the confidence comes for me, like I I knew I was gonna get 20 goals. Like you could not convince me it wasn't gonna happen. Even if I only had three or four shifts a game, and then then I'll score I'll score every game. I'm I swear to God. I don't know why I think that way. I just do, and um, it seems to work. My first coaching job—I can't believe this worked. Um, I had no experience coaching. Like I really can't believe this worked. I got—I got I to be honest. i am i am i am amazed that this one worked because because when you're when you're playing hockey, like I believe that when I'm playing hockey, and if I want to score a goal, I don't believe you can stop me if I really want to do it because it's it's all up to me, right? It's what I do, and I can I can I can directly affect whether the, I score or not just do my effort, but coaching is different. I've, I've, I've got a, I've, there's 20 people involved in this thing and I can't control their actions. You know what I mean? So like one, one or two guys don't feel like playing though. We're not going to win. So I, I I went into the interview and I was really well prepared. Dave Tippett actually gave me a lot of great advice on how to prepare for an interview. So I, I had a, I had a great presentation set up, but I think I have ADHD or something. I really do. I think I got some, some issues because I get bored really fast. So I'm sitting there with the two owners and the general manager. I'm going through my presentation. and about halfway through, and I got bored, and I stopped. I turned off the projector, and I sat down. And I said, hey. I go, I, just, I cannot believe I did this. So Dave told me to get as much information on the team as possible prior to going. He says, when, when you ask questions, you have to know what the answers are going to be. All right? So I knew a couple things about this team that were really important. Number one, the owners have owned the team for four years. They've made the playoffs every year. Number two, they'd never won a playoff round, and because of that, the owners are extremely angry, and that's why they fired the previous coach. So I knew all this. So I sat down, turned off the projector, said, "All right, guys, listen. You've seen, you've you've interviewed fifty guys. You've seen all this garbage. Okay, salary structure, you know, community blah blah blah. You don't, you've seen this a hundred times. So listen, let's just forget about it. Um, I understand you guys have owned the team for four years. They go, yeah, that's right." This is down in Macon, Georgia, by the way. And I said, okay, so, and you've made the playoffs every year, correct? Yes. I said, okay. Um, And you haven't, you've never won a playoff round, eh? No, we haven't. I said, man, that must really get you guys upset. You must be pissed about that. they go, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, we are actually. I said, all right, listen, if you hire me, I guarantee you that we will win at least one playoff round. And they looked at each other and like, they looked like they were angry. And they said, okay, this, they, they ended the meeting right there and so i left so i'm walking back to the hotel going oh man you sure put your foot in your mouth this time you idiot you screwed this up (laughs) So i get to the hotel it's about a 20 minute walk and the little light on the on the phone is on so i got the message and it was the general manager asked me to come back to the rink so i went back to the rink and i sat down in the office again they said okay we'd like to we'd like to offer you the head coaching position here i said okay great thanks i shook their hands and they said do you know why we offer you the job i said nope not a clue (laughs) because <laughs> I didn't, they said, "Well, you're the only one that had the had the the, the 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 guts to predict or to guarantee a playoff victory, and we expect you to deliver." I said, "Okay, great." Got up and I left. So I <laughs> went back to the hotel. I called my wife. First person I called, I said, "Honey, I've got some good news and bad news." She goes, "Oh, well, well." She goes, "Well, well, what's the what's the good news?" I said, "Well, I got the job," and she said, "Oh, she's crying. She's so oh, I'm so proud of you. Oh, this is great. Oh, great and first job. Blah blah blah." And she goes, well, "What's the bad news?" Then I said, "Well, I told these guys I was going to win the first round. I have no idea how to do that, <laughs> so, which was true. I didn't know what I, I didn't know what I was doing. So I get in there. I have an up and down season, you know. And, and I made I made a couple of good trades at the end of the year that really turned the team around. And so we we make playoffs, but we're going to play the best team in the league. And they were the best team. They were they were like the Florida Panthers of the of the league. That they were they led by that much, just ridiculous. We played them twelve times that year." I think we beat them twice in a shootout, so we we couldn't beat them uh, in a 60 minute game. All right. So so what I did was I just uh, I I decided to go to work and I got prepared for that. I, I we got to the point where I guess before analytics, I did my own analytics, but I did it with VHS and I. We we knew me and my coaching staff knew knew every single player's tendencies on that team. And literally we could wherever wherever they were on the ice, we knew what they were gonna do when, when they're in, in that area. So we prepared our team really well and we smoked them, beat them three games to one. It wasn't even close. The closest game was a one-nothing loss in, in quadruple overtime where we hit two crossbars, a goal post, we were all over them. They got a lucky shot from center ice that somehow found its way between my goalies pads for the winner. And then, other than that, they 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 didn't even belong on the ice with us. And so um, we ended up winning the first round. And I, I was like, "Oh my God, I can't believe we just did that." <laughs> now, what I should have done, and what I tell my students is this: Okay, I I often said I wanted I wanted to play in the NHL. All right, and I think I made a mistake. I think your goals should be clearly defined and precise. I should never have said I wanted to play in the NHL. I should have said I wanted to play a thousand games in the NHL because I played playing one game is playing, right? I played 45 and I I think if I, I if I had a different mindset and approached it differently, I think I would have played more. So by saying, I shouldn't have said we're going to win only one round. I should have said we're going to win the championship because in the next round, we lost uh, three games to one uh, and we were bounced out of the second round. And actually that would have been, that was a semifinal. So I, I set my goals way too low. And I should have, I should have, um, I should have definitely uh, set them higher. I think, I think if we did, I really believe as a group we would have done way better in the second round. Maybe not won it, but certainly wouldn't have lost three games to one. Right. But that's kind of you know, that, that was a lesson I learned. And and I tell my students all the time, don't just don't just make these vague goals. Like like be precise. Be like like you know be deliberate about it. If you want to play a thousand games in the National League, say you want to play a thousand games. If you get to if you get to hundred, that's pretty freaking good. You know, it's it's nothing to sneeze at, and a uh, hundred is better than forty-five. If you yeah. if I had a choice between playing hundred or playing forty-five, I'm taking the hundred all day long. So I really should have um I should have set much higher goals, and and that's what I think I, I encounter a lot of players whose parents are afraid for their kids to do that. I should have done that. I, I that if I could go back again and li- relive my life, I would have done that. I would have set a higher goal. I would have made an outrageous. A outrageous statement and that would have said uh, yeah a thousand games in the show boom just say it whether you do it or not who cares right and as long as wherever you wherever you land is where you're supposed to land but i think that if you can set those goals higher i think somehow the universe rewards you for that want to take a short break here to
1: celebrate Graham Townsend and uh, and talk about what he's doing out there in Maine. Uh, If you are anywhere in Maine and you have an amateur athlete that wants to get ready for this coming season, uh, check out Townsend Hockey. That's T-O-W-N-S-H-E-N-D. Love everything that Graham's doing, what he stands for. Not only does he feel... (laughs) that hockey is important to these young athletes of course but he loves developing the human being inside the athlete and he knows hockey is usually a vehicle to someplace else and if you can learn uh you know the character traits and the uh and the intangibles required for success uh, that will translate anywhere. So Graham knows his hockey. He knows the skill development. He knows how to develop hockey players. He also knows how to develop good humans. I would definitely trust my son uh, in his environment. Uh, we are on the West Coast, though. He's on the East. So if you're anywhere around Maine, he does boarding camps. He has mentorship programs. Uh, there's day clinics. All types of great stuff there at Townsend Hockey. Once again, T-O-W-N-S-H-E-N-D, townsendhockey.com. Check Graham out see what he's doing support what he's got going on there and your athlete will be the better for it uh so yeah let's get back to the interview with
0: graham townsend and so that so that's kind of how i i guess um i guess that's where it all comes from for me is uh is, is believing in myself believing that um if i'm willing to work at something that the universe or god will will reward me for it and um that's kind of how I base everything I do now is I set I set really lofty goals, outrageous, stupid goals. And um I'm not afraid to uh to to just come close. Um I'm not afraid that I don't view it as a failure. You know, I, I gotta tell you something, Jason. Um I, I, I learned a lot of that from someone that I that I that I started out not liking. I couldn't stand this one guy that I played with. I won't say his name, but um I could not stand him. You'd be walking down the hallway of the rink, you'd say hi to him, he'd walk right past you. Like, I wanted to knock this guy out every time he did that to me, you know. So one day we're, um, we had, I don't know if you remember, Saul Miller, uh, the, 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 the sports um, performance coach. He was one of the first, he, he wrote the book, uh, Hockey Tough. Oh, okay. And um, every team used them back in those days, in the mid-90s. So um, he, he had a meeting with us, with our team. And uh, <laughs> this is in the NHL. So he, he says to us all, the whole group, um, so how many of you guys have ever failed at anything in your life? So everyone raised their hand except for this one guy. And he even puzzled Saul Miller. I remember looking at him. I got, I got my arm in the air. I look at this guy. And I said to myself, look at this Aaron guy. He's never failed at anything. Like, who does he think he is? And so Saul was puzzled. And Saul said, hey, you know, let's just say his name was Bob. Hey, Bob, I noticed you didn't raise your hand. Um, he goes, that's right. And he says, so you've never failed in anything in your life? He goes, nope. Can you explain? Yeah, sure. He goes, listen, I've set goals. I've hit roadblocks, um, but I don't view them as failure. He says, I view them. I view everything as a learning experience, and I just learn what I can from the experience, and then I move on. So I don't fail. And I'm like, wow, this is my favorite guy in the world right now. What a way to look at life, eh? Like, it's not failure. It's learning experiences. You know, you set a goal. You don't achieve it. Okay, what did I do wrong? All right, fix it. And then you, you nail it the next time. I'm like, oh, my God. So I started... I, I instantly adopted that philosophy, and I stopped. I stopped admitting to failure. Um, no longer, I didn't like to use the word anymore, and I, I don't let. I don't let my students to use the word. We go through a a series of learning experiences, and we learn what we can from the mistakes we've made, and the setbacks, and we get better, and then we nail it the next time. Because you know, you think of failure, it, it, it's such a negative thing, right? And this guy never viewed it that way, and, and I swear after that day, and that, thats when I met. That's when that whole—that was before the whole thing with Terry Ruskowski. So by the time I got to Terry, I had this, I had this in my, I had this in my quiver, right? Another arrow there, and uh, I was ready to go, man. Like, no, I'm not. I'm not going to fail. I'm going to get 20 goals, dude. And right. that's because I met that guy, and I'll never forget that. And that changed my life. Um, and and I've, I've, I've maintained that philosophy ever since. That was like 1994, I think it was. And uh haven't looked back since. So yeah, that was really, really important. That was an important meeting. And uh, man, thank God I was I was in that place at that time. Because uh, who knows what what my life would have looked like if I didn't learn that.
1: Do you know um Do you know a guy by the name of Terry Ryan? He's around my age. You ever, you I know the name.
0: Him? I know yeah. the name. Yeah. I don't. I, I think I might have even played against him. He was a first rounder to Montreal, and he
1: fought Ty Domi a couple times. And he's from Newfoundland, and anyways he's a he's a good he's a buddy of mine. I've been on his podcast. Anyways, he likes to. He likes to talk, and and he uh, he held the previous record for longest story time, and you just took I over. I, I love it. I love. That's like twenty minutes, man. I didn't even ask a question. I enjoyed every second of it, but that was perfect. Yeah.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I think that's hilarious, man. I, yeah, I tell a lot of stories. Um, you know, I come from a family of storytellers, but yeah, so.
1: Okay, well, I'm going to break down because there was there was so much there was so much there in that last like 20 25 minutes that, that I want to talk about. One I didn't get a chance to interject they put you in a different hotel than the other teammates. Yeah,
0: yeah, they That's did. Phenomenal. Can you imagine if that would happen in this in today's day and age? And who knows? I mean, I don't, yeah, I, I, I couldn't imagine it. And of course, yeah, I mean, like, what a
1: premeditated thing to do, like, to make you feel inferior, right? Oh, like, you have to go out of your way to do that.
0: Oh, yeah, 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 you're right. He, he had, he, um, you're right. And everything he did was calculated for sure. Um, oh my god, yeah, you think about everything he did. And at the time, I just, I just remember feeling sorry for myself, right? <laughs> I but, you know what hit, I mean?
1: but that's the thing, bad. like. I'm not saying that should have happened or it was good that it happened. Like I definitely wouldn't say that, but like those, those types of things, like you already mentioned the word failure, uh, like the adversity, right. And like the, like the toughness or whatever you want to use there for you to show up again. Yeah. You know, for you not to leave, for you to say, no, this is too important for me or whatever it was that you went through. Like that really galvanizes you and who you are and what you want to do. Right. And, um, and, and I think today's generation just—they they don't see adversity that way, or they don't want to see it that way, and they want to leave. Yeah. You know, which kind of like was the original question that I asked you—is like, what do you do in these situations where adversity strikes? Now, like players want to run. Yeah. I mean, you were in a yeah. different hotel than your teammates in D1 college.
0: Yeah, right. Oh, like, yeah. what a
1: great opportunity to say, you know what, this isn't for me. I'm out of here. You know, and
0: one of our and one of our guys did that. He actually left. Right. You know, I just um, I I just wasn't raised to accept quitting. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like I just can't quit, no matter what. And then it, listen, that situation for four years was literally four years of hell. It was really bad. Um, and I'll tell you, like some people say, might say that you know I should have quit, but um, I had I had a really serious um, mental issue after leaving that school. Um, so so I had a there was a senior at RPI, and this guy had a hair across his butt for us freshmen. He didn't like us especially me. So, so <laughs> i another story. And this is why, like, like, I, like, see, I, I grew up, I grew up in Ontario housing. I grew up in what, what's known as the projects in Canada. And I'm not trying to say it's like, it's like growing up in the projects in Chicago. It's nothing like that at all. Canadian housing projects are not the same as say, you know, Southside Chicago or Brooklyn or something like that, but it's still tough by Canadian standards. Okay. And if you don't stick up for yourself, and you and you have to, and, you, and it has to be. I hate to say it, but in, in my neighborhood, it is always it is always violent. Okay, when when someone did something to you, if you didn't respond in a severe and swift manner, I'm telling you, the whole neighborhood's going to pick on you and torment you the rest of your life, and you will be miserable. So you have to you have to make a stand. It has to be shock and awe. Like I'm not saying going to, going to you know take someone's life, but you have to be willing to go pretty darn far. So that, that, that's my mentality. So I'm going to RPI now and, and I'm the only black guy, right, from from this community and everybody else is from middle-class Canada and middle-class Massachusetts and they have a different way of looking at things than I do. So I got this guy who's picking on me all year and, I'll, and I'll, I'll, take, I'll take a lot of stuff to a point. So, you know, hey, freshman, unload the bus. Hey, no problem. I got to pay my dues. Hey, freshman, pick up the pucks. No problem. I'll pay my dues because when I'm a sophomore, I don't have to do that anymore. So I'll pay my dues. So anyway, one day, we're playing at princeton we, we um we won but we didn't play well I, I played poorly so the coach was mad at me so we get back to rpi it's a three-hour drive and, and um i'm getting off the bus and i'm pretty pretty bummed so a teammate tells me a joke and i start laughing well the coach heard me laughing outside the bus i have a very loud voice and he knew it was me so he got on the bus and he asked who who was laughing and i said me coach and he goes townsend that you i go yep he says um how could you be laughing after the way you played tonight because now I know how badly you want to play here. And he got off the bus. I'm like, I, I'm thinking, oh, great. So I get off the bus, and this this senior, I'll call him Bob, too. He's got this huge smile on his face, right? And he goes, he points at me, you are in trouble. I go, yeah, what I do this time? He goes, well, coach told all of us, he points to all the guys. He told all of us not to talk to you anymore. I said, okay, great. So we get on campus, and sure enough, I say hi to guys. They walk right past me. <laughs> only one guy talked to me it was my, my he's my best friend of this day. His name is John Haley He's the only guy that talked to me. So that's what I was dealing with So now we go home for Christmas and we only get one day because we have to play in the Great Lakes Tournament So this guy Bob tell he's from Toronto. He's gonna give me a ride to Detroit He, he says meet me at such-and-such such a subway station at 8 o'clock if you're not there. I'm leaving So like if I'm not there on time he's gonna leave me in Toronto. So all right, fine So I get there a half hour early I wait for him. He gets in the car. We start driving to Detroit. And the whole it's a four-hour drive. The whole way there, he's just ripping me. I remember looking over my left shoulder as he's just jab, jabbing away. I'm looking at his jaw. And I'm saying to myself, man, I should break that jaw right now. <laughs> but if I do, we're going to crash and die. So maybe I'll wait till later. But I was going to sucker him. I was so mad, eh? So what I did was I realized, okay, I can't be beating up my teammates because I'm probably going to get in trouble somehow. So I'm waiting until the end of the season. He's a senior. So when, he, so when the season's over, he's no longer my teammate. So I can do whatever I want. So the end of the year comes around. And I'm just thinking to myself, okay, how am I going to do this? I'm just going to jump him. I'm going to warn him. What am I going to do? So I'm trying to figure it out. And we had a, we had a team party. And sure enough, at the team party, he, he insults me in front of a whole bunch of people. And I said, this is my opportunity. So I said, listen, you've been on me all year. I said, I've been waiting for this moment a long time. So what you and I are going to go outside in the front lawn. We're going to take care of this right now. Let's go. So I start walking to the front door and he won't move. I walk back over. I said, You're not going to fight me? And he just looks at me. I said, Hey, I said, get up. Let's go. We're going to take care of this. Come on, let's go. And he wouldn't go. And so I finally said, you know what? I kind of figured you were a coward. That's why you bullied me all year. And I said, now you've confirmed it. You are a coward. And all the guys started laughing at him. I said, I said, I shook my head. I said, I can't believe you're not going to stand up. And I walked away and that was it. Never didn't have to throw a single punch, but he did not want any part of it. And um, so that's kind of how I learned to handle things at that school. And that's why I think I survived because um, I had that mentality. I, I just uh, wouldn't let anyone pick on me, um, even the coach. Like, you know, you don't think I can play here? Yeah, I'll show you. And But he wasn't trying to get me to um, – he wasn't using reverse psychology. He really wanted my scholarship back. He thought I was a terrible player and wanted, my, wanted, wanted money back right and, and um so there's no way he's getting it i'm gonna prove you wrong and then sure enough two years later i'm the captain of the team how about that eh it's really yeah. funny but yeah so that's how i got through it and um um it, it's uh just 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 quitting is not an option it just isn't an option I had,
1: um, i've told on this podcast once or twice but uh, my draft year was a, kind of a similar story where, where i had a a coach, and I'm still not sure, I would love to talk to him to this, like, have a sit-down with him at this point, but he you was know, 16, 17 years old, right? He was an old-school uh, coach by even that, by even in that generation, in the 90s, he was old-school. Brian Maxwell was his name. He was a first- runner. I know him. Yeah, he was a first- himself to the Kings, and he was a hell of a coach, like, I, to this, you know, anyone ever asked me about him, I, I learned more from him about the game than probably anyone else they ever played for. Really understood the game well, taught us all the details, especially the defensive zone and everything else, but boy, it was T hard on me, like hard on me to a point where it wasn't helping me. You know, like it wasn't helping me in my draft year after scoring 36 goals as a 16 year old in the CHL, and then all of a sudden now I can't get on the ice. And um, and then I have my dad who's like, like so, my dad wanted me to tra- get traded, right? Like he he wanted the GM to trade me. He wanted me to leave the room. He he was going to pack my, my my stall up one game when I was sitting on the bench. Like that type of stuff is going on in the background, right? And then I'm trying to manage everything like i'm trying to be a part of this team right i'm trying to be productive i'm trying to understand what's going on like the psychology of what's happening and manage the relationship because i didn't want to ask for a trade or quit right because that wasn't part of me either right and then now you become you become this thing that maybe other people thought you were like a spoiled kid or like but that was kind of like what brian maxwell i thought was portraying me as right like that i was yeah. like a spoiled kind of entitled kid that was uncoachable so now, like in my mind, I'm like, well, if I leave now, like all I'm doing is like making him right, you know, like I got to find a way through this. And and I was never good at quitting anything, anyways, right? I think it was just something that was in, that was in me. And um, and yeah, I stuck it out. I mean, he ended up he ended up quitting. The irony the irony of that is like he came into the room right before one game and he's left like legitimately right before a game was about to start. He, he resigned. Wow. Um, I still think it was something to do with me. I don't think it was entirely, but there was like that was right when it was things were really hot with me. Um, so anyways, and then and the draft year finished and I end up, I, mean, I did slide a ton. I was supposed to be top 10. I ended up going 31st overall. I mean, but I'm still like that moment in time. And I'm sure you've, you I mean, you relate a ton of stories now where, you I mean, you've, you've had to have that galvanizing inner moment. Like for me, I'm really proud of how I handled that year. I mean, it didn't help me maybe professionally, let's say, right. It didn't help me from a draft standpoint. And maybe if I did get traded and and got first line minutes somewhere else, it probably would have helped me from a draft standpoint. But just standing in that fire, you know, like standing inside that fire and like, yeah. and not going away and, and not getting pushed around and like, and doing it on my terms, I'm, I'm still to this day proud of that, you know? And, uh, and I think that that there is some resolve there that you find, you know, and, and for sure it's helped me outside of hockey. It helped me after in hockey, when you meet somebody else or you're in a new situation or whatever, right? You, you build this kind of fortitude that you wouldn't have otherwise. So Uh, It's interesting, man, like those those scenarios that come up, right, is it's how we do it. And um, sometimes when I'm working with my players now, right, like having that you have used the word mentor a lot already, like having that mentor or that coach or that someone that can help you find your own way through that, you know, can be super, super helpful, you know, and that's. That's one of the things that I really try is empower these young athletes to to not go away, you know, like to, to not go away, find a way through where, where they feel like they're in control of the situation. And I really think that helps um, not only in the hockey aspect, but also, you know, later on. But uh, uh, I wanted to ask you the other thing. Well, just about about you about you getting out of that RPI? Well, first of all, I guess we have to unpack that N-word because, I mean, it is relevant right now. I know the NHL is doing a ton with it now to increase, you know, diversity and acceptance and, and everything that's happening. Uh, in that day and age, Like if I got my mind, if I got my years right, it must have been around 88, 89. Um, I'm almost impressed by the school that, like, them knowing about that, that caused his resignation. That was kind of back in the dark ages where I thought that, that maybe wouldn't have that type of uh, a reaction
0: to that. Well definitely um you know let, let me let me let me first say that I I don't believe that the coach was a racist I really don't I yeah. just think he um and, and cuz I had another teammate that that called me that name one time too and I'm not necessarily sure that that guy was a racist um just because he used the word I don't think it necessarily means you are um he could have called me if he was a racist naming a black person as your captain is one of the dumbest things you can do that's yeah. the most anti-racist thing I think you could do. That's just my opinion. So I just think he made a really stupid mistake. And um, regardless of whether it's a mistake or not, it still angered me. And I felt that I took care of it to my satisfaction. I put him on notice because use it. I, I didn't tell him what was going to happen if he used it against me, if he used the word again. But it wasn't going to be me going to the school. It was going to be me going after him. Like yeah. I would have definitely gone after him physically if he called me that again. And I'm just tell, I was just telling him, you're going to be in – serious trouble if you ever use that word around me again. That's what I meant by it. There's no way I was going to go and tell on them because I've always, again, I grew up in an, in an environment where you you did, you, you took care of yourself. You didn't uh, I didn't go, I didn't go, I didn't seek anybody else's assistance in helping me with anything in, in, as a kid. I did it myself. If I had a problem with somebody then I didn't go tell my mom about it. I just went and took care of myself. That's just how we learned to do things in our neighborhood. Again, going for going and telling on somebody was the worst thing you could do in my neighborhood um you know we call those people those people rats and um you didn't want to be a rat in my neighborhood because again like I said socially you'd be done forever and yeah. um and there's no there's no coming back from that. so yeah so yeah the school the school did the right thing he did he did need to leave for sure um and the school did show some support and I respect that but um the community itself, man, it, it that that hasn't changed. On um, the community, the community itself blames me for him leaving. Like there are still people there to this day that blame me for that. And I'm, and i I'm, first of all, I'm not the one that told on them. In fact, when I when I was I was doing an independent study with a professor at the school, and um, in fact, she she just recently found me on Facebook about four months ago and apologized to me for this because because what she did was wrong. So I was doing an independent study. And one of my teammates was doing the same thing, doing this independent study with her, and he he told her about this. So, I, so the way this works is, I, I'd write a paper, I'd take it to her, she'd she'd grade it, I'd make corrections, and then I'd just get an A. Right? That's independent studies are very easy in college. So, so anyway, I'm getting my papers graded, and then all of a sudden she stops in the middle of reading them, and she says, "I got to ask you a question." I said, "Okay, go ahead." And she asked me the question and she went and she recited word for word what he said to me as though she was sitting right beside me. I, I, was, I was blown away because she got it perfectly accurate. And I just and she, I just looked at her and said, hey, who told you that? She says, well, is it true? I said, I, I wanna know who told you. And she says, one of your teammates. I said, well, let me tell you something. What happens in the locker room stays in the locker room. Um, I took care of it already. I don't need anybody anybody's assistance, we're, we're good. She says, Well, you should report this. I said, Nope, not gonna happen. Um, it's over. It was like two weeks before. It was two weeks before this this meeting with her. I said, It's over, we're done. And she says, No, you should you should at least report it and have it put onto his employee file. It's something that doesn't get never never gets revealed until he's looking for another job or something like that. I said, No, I'm not doing that. I said, Look, I just want to get my degree, sign an NHL deal, and get the hell out of this place. I said, You guys will never see me again. Okay, I just want to just want to go. Like, just leave me alone. And she she couldn't let it let it sit. So she went and told on him. And that's when it got out. And that's when everything went crazy and ruined our whole season. Our season went right down the tubes after that. And uh, it, it, and so she actually, and then, then of course, I'm thrown in the fire because now everyone knows about it. So the media gets a hold of it. And suddenly I'm, a, I'm on TV. I'm being interviewed all over the place. And I'm trying to duck out of town and make sure. You know, I, I went to Florida with my mentor. Some newspaper reporter found me down there in the hotel we're staying in. It was, a, it was a nightmare. And so she, she, uh, she shouldn't have done that. She should have respected my wishes and, uh, kept me out of all that, you know, cause it was really, it wasn't the right time and I, I didn't want it. And so, but, but, but four months ago she actually apologized. And I said, you know what? I said, thank you. Appreciate that. It's better late than never. <laughs> so she right. did the right thing. She finally made up, she made up for it. You know,
1: what, uh, in doing the, the brief bit of, uh, you know, investigation I did uh, about you. You were the first player from Jamaica to ever play in the NHL.
0: Yeah, yeah. player. And I used to joke about that all the time. You know, I'm um, I i was not good enough to play for Team Canada, so I, f- I figured, you know, maybe I start Team Jamaica. I could I'd be on the power play, kill the penalties. I'd be the stick boy and <laughs> the coach and everything else. So yeah, I always joked about it. And then, sure enough, uh, someone started a, a Jamaican a hockey program. I was involved with for a brief moment, but uh, yeah, first Jamaican-born player. I was born in Jamaica, moved to Toronto when I was three. When you were Uh, three, I was going. My brother was a year old. Yeah. And uh, so yeah, so technically, um, I am the first Jamaican. I am the first Jamaican-born NHL player. So yeah.
1: (laughs) Gotcha. Yeah, that's pretty cool. Like what a what a what an amazing uh,
0: you know little little
1: accolade to have there. But how how was that? you mean, that experience being being a Jamaican Canadian in Canada playing hockey. Um, at a time where I don't even know what was like what was the atmosphere like then like he I know we've talked offline a little bit you said that you never really encountered any, anything but can you walk us through sort of what that what that was like
0: it was great I I loved I I loved where I lived I grew up in the Pape and Danforth area we first moved to first moved to the Pape and Danforth anyone that knows anything about Toronto it's a it's a highly ethnic community. There, there are a lot of people from everywhere. You name it, man. We had we had people from Greece, we had Italians, we had we had Portuguese, we had Asian people, we had everybody. We had, it, was, it was awesome. It was literally a melting pot of, of of 50 different cultures. And I had friends like you, you would never know. Like kid, kids don't learn racism from like not from this, They learn it from, from parents and from, from adults and whatnot, but we didn't know we were different we're just a bunch of kids playing hockey together and we loved it so so no one no one ever um i I can't remember anyone ever crossing a line because in my group of friends there's white kids black kids we had another kid who's portuguese um we had an asian another asian kid so we all just kind of like just hung out together and and there was never a problem wasn't until um i actually didn't encounter anything really that all that terrible until i got to college and um and I gotta tell you, I'll tell you, I'm gonna get get a lot of hell for this, but the 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 negativity I got, other than my coach and and that one one teammate, came from the other uh, minority students. I don't think they liked the fact that I played hockey. I'm just I'm just speculating because I got treated, I got the cold shoulder from everybody, and that wasn't until this thing happened with my coach. So so Bruce Coles and I are sitting in the cafeteria by ourselves because so my teammates, to their in their defense, they were afraid to show any support because they didn't know if the coach came back and you showed some support to me and Bruce, I'm telling you, this guy's going to, he's going to crucify you. You're not going to play. And so my teammates were afraid to hang out with us. And I, and to the, like I had no problem. I I totally understood why they did it because I probably would have done the same thing. So Bruce and I are sitting in the cafeteria in the corner because we didn't want to be seen and we're sipping soup, you know, and, and the, and the guy that was running the minority student council walked up to us. And this guy for four years had never said a word to me. I'd seen him at frat parties and everything, said hi, just blew me off. Like, honestly, just really disrespectful. So all of a sudden he comes up and says, listen, um, I want you to know that the uh, minority student council, uh, we are offended by what your coach said, and we'd like you guys to come down with us and march on the president's president's office. And I looked at this guy and said, listen, dude, I've been here for four years, and this is the first time you've ever talked to me, okay? I've said, I've said hello to you many times on campus in classes and you just gave me the cold shoulder. And now suddenly you want to be my best friend and have me march on the presence. I go, listen, you go march yourself. Me and Bruce are eating our soup. Like, Get out of here. So we finished our soup. Like, you know, I don't want, you guys want to use me for his, for his cause. You know what I'm saying? Like yeah. he didn't care about me. So, so that, so that, that was the first time i ever really felt black, I guess, you know, like, and I know those students didn't like me playing hockey. I am pretty darn sure of it. Cause it's considered yeah. a white man's game, I suppose. But, um, um, that was it. And then, of course, um, really not much in the pros. I got called the N-word a couple times. But again, I don't think it was motivated by necessarily by racism. I think guys were trying to piss me off. And um, that's one good way to do it for sure. So I, I became best friends with one of the guys that, that called me that name. So um, I just never really had the issues that these kids are having today. Um, I certainly didn't experience anything like that from a coach after college. The coaches I had were great. I had Rick Bonus, I had Mike Milbury. Um, you know, Don McAdam, I had some great coaches, even Terry was a good coach. I liked playing for Terry. Um, Dave Tippett was probably the best coach I ever had. And, um, yeah, so I, I, I had no problems whatsoever. And if I did, maybe I'm just oblivious to it. Maybe I just right. don't let, maybe I don't let things get to me. I have no idea, but I, I don't, I didn't feel like I, I, I didn't experience anything that these kids today are experiencing. And and know what they're going through today is real. It's, it's really bad. And um, shame on all those parents who allow their children to behave that way. But that's that. It's I have a lot of kids that I, I work with, and and it's horrible what they're going through right now. Do you think I it's don't. W- it's worse now. You think? That- oh yeah. Than before. Way worse. It's 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 um. It's like I think I, I'm not saying that there are no racist people in the in, in back in the 80s. I just think they were ashamed to be to to express themselves. I think that's what it was. I think they 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 were underground. Now they're not ashamed. They're proud of it. They just come out and say it. Right. yeah because no no one holds them accountable in my neighborhood growing up' like let's say you went to i went to George vanier secondary school if you if you called a black person a name I'm, 10 white kids would jump you in my school that's that's how what, what kind of people i went to school with they were amazing um that just you were not allowed to behave that way and i'm not talking about the black kids. i am talking about the white kids would, would be on you they would yeah. you, you wouldn't you, you wouldn't have to worry about the black kids. the white kids would already be on you and um, and, and and stop that kind of behavior. Uh, I'm, I'm dead serious. Um, that doesn't happen today. I don't believe I think I think you have a lot of good kids who don't like what's going on, but they're afraid to do the right thing. Whereas I believe in my day, I really don't believe that the kids were afraid because there are more of them that were willing to step up and do the right thing. I think today you're, uh, a person like that's a unicorn and they're afraid to do it right? I think that's why it's perpetuating and why it's so it's it's, it's such a big problem.
1: Um, you know what? And and this is just coming to me, and it could be completely wrong too. But like the lack, the lack of societal acceptance with physicality now, and especially yeah. at schools and everywhere. Do you think that has something to do with it? Like, yeah,
0: oh yeah. Uh, so I'll tell but you. You are sorry. not allowed to wrestle
1: at like at, no. at school anymore. You're not like they, they my kids who are in like my one kid's in grade seven, right? So he's been to elementary school now from grade one to grade seven. He has not seen one fight at his school.
0: Well, and I'm not and, even like to me, like, I'm not yeah. I,
1: I, I should just give me a second, because I, I yeah. don't want to sound like I'm a Neanderthal and I don't think like that, that that it should be celebrated. Cause I'm sure like the school is probably celebrating that Hudson hasn't seen a fight on, on school, but like I don't think that's normal. No. You know I mean? I don't think it's natural. Like I do. I don't. I think that there's there's times where it does call for it in some way, shape, or form. Or at least the threat of it, and which maybe now inspires these kids to use words more because there's nothing that's going to go wrong as far as like physical harm.
0: I think you're right, Jason. I think I think the problem is though is um. So let's go back to the 80s and 70s, right? So when I was growing up, you could get into a fight, and someone you know someone would scuff you up. All right, you wouldn't go home and grab a gun. You just you go home, you lick your wounds, and then maybe a week or two later you try again. But the problem is the reason why they have to have have to be so strict is because some kid will go home and grab a gun and kill that kid. Like they will do it. That's the problem. Today they're crazy. Okay. You have to be crazy to want to take someone's life for beating you up or calling you a name. You know, you have to be out of your mind. And, and I'm telling you, that's why they have to do it. There has to be no zero tolerance because these kids will do it. And then you've got parents who give, who allow their kids access to deadly weapons. You, yeah, you nice. know, we didn't have that when I was growing up. No one's going to, no one's going to stab you with a knife or anything like that. You're just going to, you're going to get beat up and you're going to get a bruise or something, maybe a cut. And that's about as bad as that. Then it's over. Next day, you guys are friends again. You know, yeah. how many times did that happen to you growing up where you had a fight with somebody? And the next day you guys are having lunch together right today and that, that and that's a sad commentary that that this is happening that kids will go that far um, and t- to take a person's life for something like that and that's why I believe there's a, there's zero time to- my hockey schools zero tolerance I don't allow any fighting you have you have to I don't I'm gonna to call it hugging it up but you have to resolve things diplomatically and through through conversation because if I let a kid knock somebody out what if the kid falls down hits his head and dies right that's that that can happen and so um I, I i have a zero zero tolerance for fighting too at my hockey schools simply because it's just not safe for the for all the kids and and that, i think that's what's going on but yeah i think um teaching kids to step up and 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 not be afraid to say what they have to say if they see something wrong to step up and not be afraid to be alone if cause sometimes you're gonna have to risk not maybe not having friends because um you, know, you you don't support a popular stance, but what I what I believe is uh, in hockey, um, you've got parents that are like that, the bullies, and they try to form these little cliques, right? And so I find that um like I stand up to those people, okay? And they all say the same thing. I'm gonna I'm gonna tell everybody your your program sucks, you'll never have any kids. And I, I always ask myself, listen, I've been hearing that for 30 years. When is this gonna happen exactly? Um, when is my business going to fail because you tell everybody that I'm I'm a jerk? And I think I think a lot of the people who are afraid to step up and say something, they appreciate they appreciate it when I do, because so I think they want to do it but they're they're afraid to, right? And I think that's why like you, you'd be surprised if you step up, you, you know, you'll have way more friends than you than you would if you if you just accept and join the crowd. You, people people want to follow a real leaders who lead you the right way, and you'll find like I had a lot more friends because if because I was like that. I I didn't lose any I didn't lose any important friends by step by step, standing up for what I believed in the ones that, that no longer hung out with me, I didn't want to be, I didn't want to be friends with them, yeah. but, but the ones that, um, that, that I had, I had tons of friends at school. And I think it's, I think that's why I wasn't afraid to, to, to do what was right. And, um, and, I, and that's my message to all, all my kids, like stand up for what's right. And you will have a lot of support yeah. more than you can, more than you can handle. I agree. Uh,
1: your, your story, uh, I mean,
0: coming from what you
1: talking about being one of the highest recruited or the most highest recruited players, doesn't fall in line with what uh, we were talking about earlier. With with you thinking that you were never supposed to play in the NHL. Um, how so? Like when did that? Like when did that big switch happen? And how did it happen? And I will preface this by the story when I first met you that first time, which I still think is amazing because you know how much I'm into mindset and 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 how much I I appreciate that. Uh, you know that. A person's ability to overcome and to want and to achieve. Uh, with you telling that story about Boris, and and maybe I'll yeah I'll, I'll I'll let you maybe tell that story about riding your bike and 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 making up this person named Boris on your own personal journey. But how how did you become somebody that wasn't supposed to make it to somebody that did make it?
0: Well, again, I opened my big mouth. Um, it was, I was 16 years old. First of all, I, I learned about uh, college hockey when I was 14. I was reading the hockey news magazine. There was this um, preseason poll that came out. And it just, it it, uh, it ranked all the college teams and Canadian, Canadian university, Canadian hockey league teams and everybody NHL. And I'm reading the article, reading all the all the rankings. I, I saw the college section, the NCAA section. i was thinking, wait a second, and look at Michigan State, Michigan. I said I recognized all those names from football. Right. I said they have hockey down there. And then I started reading about each team's synopsis and whatnot and and uh, or 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 preview. And it talked about scholarship, this scholarship, that. And, I, and I, I thought, wait a second, they give scholarships for hockey? I had no idea. I thought it was just for football and basketball, really. So I decided I was going to get one of those. And um, so I didn't know how to do it. I just asked questions of my coaches. They, one coach told me, well, you got to get to junior B or junior A hockey to get a scholarship. I said, okay, fine. So now I'm 16 years old. I'm playing midget A hockey in Toronto, not midget triple not midget double A, midget A. And me and some friends were out having lunch one day, and we were talking about what we wanted to be when we grew up, and I said I was going to get a scholarship and play in the NHL. And one of my buddies, Greg, laughed, um, and I was really angry. He was laughing at me. And um, he said, there's no way you're going to make it. You're not good enough, blah, blah, blah. So anyway, I said, all right, well, you watch. I'm going to make it. So I left the the cafeteria, and I thought, again, oh, boy, here we go. You you opened your big mouth again. You better make this happen because if you don't, you will be ridiculed the rest of your life. They will never let you live this down. And so I just started to really go crazy on the weight training. So now all of a sudden, when guys would invite me to parties, I'm like, no, nah, can't go. Sorry, gotta lift or I gotta shoot pucks. I gotta do this, gotta do that. I even turned on a date with a really good looking girl in school because um, I asked her out on a date, and near the end of the day, a buddy of mine said, Hey, uh, North Toronto out, North Toronto arena's outdoor rink is opening tonight. It was early November. Usually these rinks don't open until late November and all of a sudden they're, they have ice. So I called her up and I, I feel bad about this. I pretended I was sick and I went to play hockey. You know, and that's how committed I was to hockey. Forget the girl, man. I'm gonna go play pond hockey for three or four hours with my buddies. So I so that was my that was my mindset. So now I'm finally um I go try it for a junior B team. I got cut. They said, Hey, we have a juvenile program which feeds our junior B program. Why don't you go try it for that team? So that, so juvenile had, had what you called, basically it was called juvenile major and then juvenile A. For some reason they skipped the double A at the juvenile level. Okay. So I went for this juvenile major team, which was like triple A. And, um, but, but it wasn't, you know what I mean? It just labeled triple A cause I think it made you feel good about yourself. Yeah. So I, I go there, I got cut from that team. And then I said, okay, I'm gonna go try it for another juvenile major team. I tried it for a, a second team, second juvenile team. I got cut from that team. Then I went to, then I went to juvenile A I made this team, and I'm sitting in the You're locker 16 room. 16
1: or 17? How old are you at I, I was
0: 17 years old. Seven. I was, was going to turning 17, so this was like August. Um, I turned 17 in in the, in, in October. So um, I'm sitting in the locker room. The kids are the kids are in there. They all knew each other. I was a new guy, and they're talking about partying and smoking drugs and stuff and drinking. And I'm thinking to myself because other teams I played on, guys didn't do that, and I don't know why, but I didn't have teammates that were into that stuff. I remember thinking, "Oh man, I don't want to hang with these guys because I thought they were losers." So I was going to quit hockey. I wasn't going to plan this team. I don't want to be exposed to people like that. So I was going to quit. And then God was looking out for me because the, the, the Bev Stoddart, the coach from the, 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 the Don, it was the um, Don Valley Villagers, uh, called me. He was the second juvenile team that cut me, and he said, "Hey, listen, one of our kids made a junior B team, so I have a forward spot left. Do you want it?" And I said, "Absolutely." So I, so I signed with that team. And so now we have a team party. And I didn't drink at all. Didn't do anything. So we have a team party. Someone offers me a beer. We're 17 years old, by the way. And I said, no, nah, I don't drink. And one of the guys called me the P word. So I got mad. Again, I could told you I'm from the hood. And I said, hey, let's go outside. And he goes, what do you mean? I said, you, you call me the P word? Let's go. And he goes, no, 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 no. You didn't want to fight me. So I said, all right, well, I don't drink. So shut it. And that was it. So the next party we had, now this, this this is why I say, like, when you stand up for what's right, this is what happens. Like, I was nervous because I'm the new guy. I'm thinking, ah, they're all going to hate me, right, because I don't drink. Well, the next party we had, they had a case of Diet Pepsi. And one of the guys goes, hey, Towner that's yours. I go, cool, man. So I remember they were playing quarters, okay? And I wanted to play quarters. So they let me play quarters with Pepsi. And then they made me an assistant captain. Boom! Instant respect because I stood up for myself. I'm telling you, right. that's why they. I became the assistant captain of the team. So then I, I played there for two years, and then suddenly, I have a really good year. I played with a guy named Bill McDougal, by the way, who still has the American League hockey American Hockey League record for he had 50 points in 16 playoff games one year in the Calder Cup playoffs. I played with him in juvenile. This kid was the best hockey player I've ever played with. I'm serious, unbelievable. So anyway, um, so I'm on that team, and uh, all of a sudden. Halfway through the year, uh, the junior B team, the Wexford Raiders, the best junior B team in Toronto, asked me to leave my juvenile team and go play for them. And I I, I said, no, I want to play with my buddies because we had a chance to win a championship and I wanted to win. So then the next year, every single junior team in Toronto wanted me to play for them. Everybody, tier two, junior B, everybody. And so I started picking up, picking and choosing which, which training camps to go to. So you had a breakout year for, for whatever reason. Oh, yeah, I, I had a good year. Yeah, I had a very good year. The year before, I broke my arm halfway through and missed half the season. But then but you're 18 second, years old at this point? I'm 18 going on 19 now. So your 18-year-old
1: so, year, you're in juvenile. Like juvenile. You're getting drafted to the NHL yes. and you're in juvenile.
0: I'm in juvenile. Juvenile, right. yeah, juvenile. And I remember parents on that team you know, telling their kids, hey, you know, just be realistic, just go to university. And I remember I, I did do this. I, there was a couple of my teammates that were way better than me. And I actually convinced them to listen to their parents because I didn't want them going to tryouts and competing against me because they would, they would have been <laughs> selected over me for sure. I'm serious. I was like, yeah, you know, your parents are right. You should start university next year, man. You shouldn't. Forget hockey. Come on. And so so, so that's was my, that was my sinister plan, eh? Like, I was so afraid that these guys, if they showed up, I swear to God they would have been selected over me. I know it. So I, I ended up making these teams, right? And I, I did really well in preseason. I was averaging two points a game in preseason. And then I ended up um, getting uh, three offers after my first exhibition game in, Ju- in June in junior B. I got three offers, and um, suddenly the three offers quickly turned into fifteen. And um, uh, all of a sudden, now I go to school. Right, the guy that was laughing at me—he's still one of my very close friends to this day. I brought all these letters, these offers, with me. About I think I had ten of them. And I and I get to lunch. Right, you you're gonna howl when I tell you this. I took them out one by one. I laid them down, and I go, "Hey guys." I got 10 offers here. Which one should I go to? Should I go to Cornell, Princeton, Harvard, RPI, Michigan? What should I do? I don't know. I don't know what to do. And this guy is jaw dropped. I said, yeah, I'm confused. <laughs> so I, 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 that was my message received. Shut the hell up, you know, Bobby. I'm going to call him Bob. And um, I, I selected RPI. I wanted to go to a school that was the number one team in the country. It was a great school academically. Adam Oates was there. I wanted to be tutored by him because he was going to be a senior my freshman year. And then, sure enough, what's he do? He signs with the Red Wings. No one signed early in those days. Everyone played four years, except this one year. All of a sudden, I think fifteen underclassmen signed, and they were getting million-dollar contracts. Right, like when the league minimum was eighty grand back then. These guys are getting million-dollar deals, two hundred thousand-dollar signing bonuses. It was ridiculous. It right. caused a big upheaval in the hockey market. Right, It, right. Looked, it looked crazy. And so Otsi signs with Detroit and leaves. And then the goalie left. He was a sophomore. He's going to be a junior. Best goalie in the country. He left. He signed with Buffalo. A few other guys left early. And all of a sudden, now the team stinks. And I'm coming as a freshman. I was told I was going to be a third liner. Suddenly, oh, you're going to have to upgrade you and move you up. I said, whoa, whoa, whoa. I'm not ready for that. And I I struggled. I wasn't ready to be a a big minutes guy as a freshman. I just wasn't prepared for it mentally. And maturity-wise, I wasn't ready. And so I just got thrown into the fire, man. And I I, I flunked. (laughs) Ha <laughs> ha
1: Let's take another quick break here to talk about what's going on at Up My Hockey. Uh, If you are listening to this, uh, when it just gets released, we are talking spring 2022. Uh, I am just launching my summer programs, my hockey programs out here in Vernon. Uh, I cover U15, U13, U11. If you're looking for uh, a hockey opportunity in the Okanagan area, check out upmyhockey.com for program details. Um, And if you are looking for mindset development, which is of course my uh, my niche, I have the Peak Potential Hockey Project that's available in three different ways. It's my four-week mindset program for hockey players. You can take that by yourself. I call that the solo mission. Uh, you can take that with me uh, with a group of athletes that's called the guided mission uh, that gets launched every five to six weeks depending on the time of season and there's also the mentored mission where you can take the course one-on-one with me um, the guided mission the mentor mission both include coaching calls uh, the group calls in the in the guided mission is is in a group format where we touch on the material make sure you know what you're doing how you're applying it uh, and that you are actually using it not only on the ice but near day-to-day life and then the uh, mentored mission is of course just me one-on-one with you and your your athlete or you as the hockey player Uh, we go over the the uh, downloads the the assignments so we get to go over those uh, one-on-one we get to apply everything to you personally in your game and you get my undivided attention. So, uh, three ways to take part in that mentored uh, or in the Peak Potential Mindset Hockey Project. Uh, you can check that out on my website as well: www.upmyhockey.com. If you're looking for, you know, greater confidence, if you're looking to be able to recover from adversity, to shine uh, when the lights are the brightest on the biggest stages, uh, or if you're just looking for that extra edge, right, to give you. Uh, to give you the opportunity that you want uh, to make your big goals and dreams come true, this is, this is for you. Um, it's something that has just absolutely rocked my world with the testimonials that are coming in from this. Ages all the way down to 10, up to 19, um, are excelling with the information available. Uh, again, it's all there for you if you are a reader at upmyhockey.com um, forward slash peak dash potential. Uh, You don't have to remember all that. Just go to UpMyHockey or reach out to me over email jason at upmyhockey.com if you have any questions about how this could help your athlete get to the next level. Um, So yeah, summer programs are out. August U15, U13, U11. Um, I call these the elite programs. This is for anyone who's getting ready for... uh, development camp or rep tryouts Uh, I put the same like-minded people on the ice together teach them age and skill appropriate things um, get them ready for competition get some scrimmages going and have a heck of a lot of fun while we're doing it It also includes training sessions for the older for the older crew with the professionals at the training house Uh, that's happening in August I also have a introduction to body checking camp in August this is I consider an absolute mandatory requirement for anyone hitting Uh, Going into hitting for the first time gets you comfortable with uh, receiving contact, giving contact from all different angles, uh, from all different uh, areas of the ice, and will get you ready and comfortable and confident for uh, for your tryouts. So that's about all I got right now. So let's get back to the interview with Graham Townsend. Where did where did boards come in? Like you obviously had oh, like a penchant a yeah. penchant for like you know taking care of your business and dreaming yeah. big. But where did you where did you where did you make up that persona?
0: Okay, so I have a buddy in school. He says, "Hey, listen, um, Chesswood Arena has um six hours of ice, nine a.m. to three p.m. Monday through Friday. It's five bucks. You can go play pond hockey for, for six hours." So I go, "Okay, fine. I'm doing that. This is all summer." And so what I did is I went to work and I asked for the the late shift, so the four to midnight shift. No, no no 18 or 19 year old kids gonna take that shift but but I took it because I needed time to be able to skate all day and then um, so I, I went and skated until three o'clock showered hopped on the, the subway went to work worked from four to midnight got home at 12:45 a.m every day and now I had to lift weights I't had, didn't have time to lift because I was on the ice for six hours right from like from nine to nine to three so I'm on my balcony I have this little light. That I didn't have an extension cord, so I had this lamp that could just reach the threshold of the doorway to my balcony, just just enough light to barely see, and I'm lifting weights at like, you know, it's one o'clock in the morning, 1 30 a.m., and I'm lifting weights, and many times, I was tired, man, it just, it was a long day, I had an eight-hour shift at work, six hours on the ice, and it's a long day, and now I got to work up for two more hours, right, and so I'm sitting there one time in between sets, I'm looking across the uh, to the western part of Toronto, you can see the horizon. Sort of, you know. And then I remember thinking to myself, "What am I doing this for?" Like, there, there's not one kid in this city lifting weights at two o'clock in the morning, and nobody would fault me if I went to bed right now. And I said, "No, nah, I can't do it. I can't quit." So I just did another set. So finally, I started getting bo- getting bored, and I'm sitting there one, one in between sets. I'm looking. I'm looking west. And okay, I'm a weirdo, okay. I, I I love birds, I love hawks and eagles. I love these birds, okay. So I I imagine myself being a a, a, a hawk and I'm flying across Canada. Okay, this is so weird. I'm flying over <laughs> over Manitoba. Okay, there's there's Alberta. I hit BC, beautiful mountains, and I'm this is going through my mind, that's very vivid. And then I said, Okay, if I keep going, oh you know, I'm gonna hit Russia. And back then they were they were our biggest rivals in hockey, right? The Soviet Union. So I said, okay. And then all of a sudden, I said to myself, you know what? Right now, I want to quit. I want to go to bed. But it's probably, it's 2 o'clock here. It's probably 2 p.m. in Russia. And there's a Russian kid right now that's lifting weights. And one day, I'm going to meet this guy at a out. And I'll be damned if that guy's better prepared than me. So I did another step. Bang, banged it out. So that's how I did it. That's how I formulated this idea in my head that there was this, this adversary somewhere out there. I'm going to meet this guy eventually. And then I get bored. Like I told you, I got ADHD. I'm sure of it. And I got bored. So then I I decided I'm going to make this a real human being. And I thought thought to myself, who's the most fierce, vicious Russian that I know? And it's Boris Mikhailov, the the famous captain of of the famous Soviet Union teams from the 80s. This guy in the the Summit series, when Bobby Clark was breaking ankles with his Louisville slugger stick, he stood up to every Canadian, wasn't afraid of... A lot of the Russians ran for the hills when, when, when our guys started getting violent. Not this guy. He would go nose to nose with anybody. He has a, You ever seen what Boris Mikhailov looks like? Like his face has been through hell, and he just doesn't care. He's a grisly old man, and just uh, I said, you know what? That's Boris. And one day, that guy is going to be waiting for me. So I, I named him Boris after Boris Mikhailov. And so every time I thought about cutting a corner, if I, if I thought about eating something that wasn't right, drinking a beer or whatever, you know, alcohol, Boris isn't going to do this. Boris is Boris is not. He's going to turn down this alcohol. Boris is going to Boris is going to go to bed at nine o'clock. Boris is going to eat the right foods. Boris is going to do an extra set. He's going to go skate for an extra two hours today. I kept on telling myself that this Boris guy was going to do all this, and that's what kept me going. And I'm telling you, man, I met a lot of Boris's over the years, and I was ready for him every time. I met a lot of Boris's who come in. This guy's taking your job this year. Oh yeah, I don't think so. And that guy ended up losing, and I I won. Because I was ready for him. I knew I knew who he was going to be 10 years before I ever met him. And that's where the whole Boris uh, philosophy came from. And so we have this philosophy at my hockey camps. It's all, you know, beat Boris. You know, i got to beat Boris. And um, Boris could be anybody. Boris could be a drug addiction. Boris could be, you know, um, a bad relationship. Boris could be anything. Anything that's going to get in the way of you being successful, that's your Boris, right? And you have to be ready for that that thing or that person. You've got to be ready to beat him. And uh, everything you do every day is preparing you to beat that thing or person or whatever it happens to be. And so that's sort of, uh, we, we just preach that to all of our kids, you know. Um, this is, and some people, I remember reading seeing thing, a basketball story where this parent taught his kid, he called it the beast. The beast is going to be waiting for you. So I'm not the, and you know who else thinks that way too is John Madden, um, the, the, the oh. hockey player. Yeah, he talked. To, I read an article about him and he, he didn't call it Boris or the beast. He just said, there's going to be someone waiting for me on the other end one day. I remember reading that article.
1: Oh my God. Like, I'm not the only person that
0: thinks this way. I'm it's sure. It's so you cool too. though, man. Like I'm
1: that's sure uh, a, yeah. uh, well, yeah. I mean, I, 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 had my wars, you know, I had my wars in the basement. Like I, I remember training, obviously like, you know, no one's there. No one's watching, Yeah. you know, can easily get off the bike. Legs are screaming, pool of sweat underneath your feet. Right. And there's just something there that just drives you, you know, yep. that's like, no, not now, not today, you know? And uh, so, I mean, I, I, I think, I think I think performance I, I mean we, we all have some level of that that I think kind of Joe public maybe doesn't have. Um, you know, I think that there is a level of that. I don't know what it is, what it's called, where it comes from. But that level, like, I love that. Like, I I got, it got gave me goosebumps again. Like, I mean you're you're skating, and this is 18 years old when you're playing juvenile, and, and everyone would have told you you're a fool, yeah, for spending yeah. that much time dedicating that and, and you're going to work and lifting weights, man. Thinking about I'm, Boris.
0: You, you can't you can't blame them because it's it's actually more logical to quit in that situation. Cause they're honest. I bet you uh, looking back, looking back on that juvenile year, there were three of us that went on. So I went on to I went I, I ended up meeting another guy um, in junior. He played on the worst team. So this guy played on the team called the Mississauga Terriers. I swear they must have gone like two and twenty-eight on the year. He and I ended up playing on the same junior B team together. He got a full ride to, 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 to Northeastern, and I went to RPI, of course. So there's a guy that was on a, a worst team in the probably in the entire country. Like I swear to God, they won maybe two or three games all year, okay. and he didn't quit like that. I I'd like to hook you up with that guy. His name is Martin Rouse. You, I'd love I'd love to hear his story because I'm thinking to myself like, how the heck did Marty not quit hockey after playing on a team? That only won two or three games all year and then he ends up going to northeastern on a full scholarship this guy's hilarious jason you'll you not believe this okay so the clarkson coach calls me one day he's going to come and see me before a game so he meets me in the lobby of the of the rink right i get there a couple hours early i'm sitting in the lobby and this is hilarious so i'm sitting down he's telling me all about clarkson university martin rouse walks and he's a he's a d-man i'm a forward martin rouse sees the coach talking to me he sits beside us i swear he did this he goes hey you give him this guy a scholarship, and the coach goes, "Uh, yes, we are." He goes, "Well, what about me?" <laughs> he goes, "Well, uh, we'd like you to come visit visit Clarkson." Uh, and I go, I go, I start sitting to, to Marty because he's raining on my parade right now. I go, "Marty, get out of here! Get out of here!" So he leaves, and Clarkson brings him in on a freaking recruiting trip. And because that ball got rolling, other schools jumped on the bandwagon. He ends up going to Northeastern, and he was a good he was a good player. I'm not saying he didn't deserve it, but. He 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 pushed himself on this coach and got and he made it happen. Like I would love to hook you up with Marty Rouse. You have to talk to this guy. No. He is a he's a he's an incredible person. And um, so, yeah, so so you you just have to, yeah, we we um we uh just just to having those experiences back in those days and and um and and um and just believing in yourself and having that that nemesis in the back of your mind, that person pushing you. Like you talk about something in your on your website where you you help your your clients um, achieve audacious goals, right? And and that got me thinking. I, I read that the other day, and I used that in um, a speech to my players last night. I said, "Listen, um, if you, any of you kids that want to that you want to get a scholarship, you want to play college hockey, whether it's D three D one doesn't matter. You actually have to be crazy, okay? And I and I explained that to him. I said, "Listen, like because I was gonna I was in I was gonna make them do this drill yesterday. That was just insanely hard." And a few of them roll their eyes, and I said, "Listen, a normal person who's asked to do this drill is going to roll their eyes because it's not. This is you have to be crazy to actually want to do what I'm going to ask you to do right now. You have to be insane." I said, "I said I used to feel out of place. I used to feel like something was wrong with me until I'm sitting in an NHL locker room one day. You know, you talk all the time with your teammates. You talk about your past and all this stuff, and you, you learn about each other. And I sat there and I thought to myself one day. I swear to God, I thought this. I said." All of these guys in this locker room are nuts because that's why they're here. You have to be crazy to think that you're gonna play in the National Hockey League and I don't care how good you are as a kid. you got to be nuts. And so when I, said, I told my kids last night I said, I finally found my tribe. Like, these are the people I can connect I, I can relate to. I can't relate to people outside outside of hockey. I just can't. I can't people who quit people who who, you know, who who say negative things and shut people down. I cannot relate to them. So I'm in a room with a bunch of guys who think they can win a Stanley Cup, like they actually, you know what I mean? You got to be crazy to think you can win a Stanley Cup for crying out loud! And every one of those guys in that room believed that we could do it, you know. So you have to be crazy, and yeah, you have to make audacious goals. That that's a great word. Um, Milan Lucic was 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 interviewed one time, and and some teacher told him to be realistic. You know, you're not going to make the NHL. And Milan Lucic's response was, "Well, someone's got to make it," (laughs) and it's true. They have to find they have to find something like uh, like 800, 900 people to put on those jerseys from those thirty two teams. Someone and and even if they can't find good players, they're still going to find someone to wear those jerseys. Yeah. If all of a sudden, if all of a sudden, if all of a sudden the only thing available was a bunch of crappy hockey players, the NHL would still exist. Yeah, you know what I mean. So so yeah, you, you just got you got to be crazy to, to, to think you can make it. And you you, you know and, and I love I love that line in your on your website, audacious goals. That that's really? awesome.
1: You got to have them, but like the, what I, like the steps between those is the thing. And you even said it earlier, um, when you mentioned about like, do your actions align? And that's something that I say to my clients all the time. Like, do your, do your thoughts, words, and actions align with your goals and dreams? Right. So you can have these audacious goals, but I think the words are easy, right? The, The words are easy, you know, like, and, and like my son, right. My oldest right now, he like, I'll just use him as an example. And, and it's, he wants to play in the NHL, right? I mean, that's what he wants to be. He wants to be a hockey player. I love it. Right. What I'm trying to get through to him, and he's only 12, right? So it's not like, you know, I want to have someone driven to the, you know, his hands are bleeding because he's shooting pucks all the time, but there needs to be a connection there between making that happen. Right. And what it's going to take for that to happen. Right. And it's going to manifest and it's going to evolve in its own way. And, and in a time age appropriate way, but saying it's easy, right? Like you being on that balcony, because you believe that's what you want at two in the morning, after eight hours of work and after eight, six hours on the ice, like that is aligning your thoughts, your words, and your actions with the goal and dream. And that's the part that's missing for the vast, vast majority of players. They think You're they so want right. it, but they don't really want it that bad.
0: Yep. You know, it's funny because you think of, you just made me think of something. Um, You know, I was getting up at 830. Have some breakfast. I'd, I'd have to get on a uh, uh, public transportation and get on by nine to get to the rink. No, sorry, by eight. Let's say eight thirty, seven thirty. And I have to get on the road by eight o'clock to get to the rink in time for a nine o'clock skate. Right. So let's just say I'm up at seven thirty. I wasn't. Go- I wasn't getting to bed until after my workout, which is usually, let's say two. So you're looking at five and a half five and a half hours sleep. Right. So let's just call it five hours for argument's sake. So that's a nineteen hour day. Right. And I've got kids that come to me and say, well, I don't have time to shoot pucks. Um, and so I, I ask them, well, well, why don't you run through your entire day for me and let me know what you've been doing all day. And they'd, they'd run down. i get up, eat breakfast, brush my teeth, blah, 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 go to school, get home at this time, do homework. And, I, and then i point out, well, you've got, you've got a three-hour window every day. And you tell me you can't sp- stick him up for 30 minutes. And I said, what are you doing during that three hours? I said, I, don't, I know what you're doing. But why don't you tell me what you're doing? And, of course, it's video games. It's social media. what they're doing for those three hours you know or watching tv or whatever um so so there's plenty of time to fit these things in there's actually more time than you need but they just it's like you said the it's the actions that that don't match the um the the goals and the the guys that are there now that we're all watching every night in the playoffs um those guys did they made the time they use that three four hour window every day to make themselves better um at their craft at their chosen um future profession or whatever and that's why they're there and yeah. you did it I did it all of our colleagues friends adversaries they all did it too
1: well you worked your I mean there is I mean I, I love that I love the journey and I love the funnel because in all the conversations that I've had too and and I mean you sounds like you had to work like if you didn't work the way you worked it sounds like you wouldn't have made it no like way you, you, you had to right yeah. like you had to
0: I had no choice I had no choice I wasn't good enough first of all right well, that's what I mean, right? So then, no. like an
1: Adam Oates, maybe like I'm sure, I'm sure Adam Oates had some type of fire. Like you already used, I'm just using it as an example. But here we're talking yeah. to Hall of Famer, right? Like, yeah. I assume that he had some type of drive that was equal to an NHL professional status. But I bet you it wasn't your
0: drive. Yeah, well, you know, the funny thing with Oatsy is that there's another great story which you should talk to him too. So, so he's a guy that was playing Tier Two Junior in Toronto, and I remember I used to go to watch him play. He played for the Markham Waxers, and so I would, I would. What I would do is I would position myself near all the scouts. Back in those days, they all wore trench coats and had notepads. So I'd stand near them and I would hear them talking. And the reason I did that is I was curious as to what they were looking for because I figured if I could give them what they're looking for, it's going to help me. Right. So I remember them talking about Oatsy. He can't skate, he can't do this, he'll never make it, blah, blah, blah. So that's what that's what they said. So years later, I'm being recruited by RPI. I don't even know what I never even heard of the school. I go down for my recruiting trip and I see an Ozi's on the ice. He's a junior, and I'm thinking, wait a second, I, I recognize that guy. Yeah, that's that Adam Oates guy. And I, I noticed his skating looked better. You know, I, I just he looked he looked different. So I went to the coach and I said, uh, Hey, um, I remember years ago the scouts were saying this guy couldn't skate. He looks like he skates pretty good now. What happened? He says, Well, we have a skating coach here. And I said, oh, This is 1985, 84. I go, What's what's a skating coach? And he explained it to me. And he says, Oates, he goes and trains with this guy for ten weeks every summer. I said really where's he where's he located oh boston so i so i said hey if i come now i was already a, a good skater i was considered a good skater when I, at that time and i'm thinking well heck if you know you can always get better right um so i said if i come to rpi can i go see can i go train with this guy too and he goes yeah so I, I i'm driving down to boston with Otsi at the end of you know i signed with rpi i'm going to boston now and um i was there for 10 weeks we were on the ice five hours a day, five days a week, so I had 250 hours of power skating, and I hated it. It was hard. I couldn't do it. I was really bad. I was embarrassed. There were little kids out there that were better than me. It was. I was really ashamed. So I, was, I wasn't I. was going to go back the next year. I was going to stay in Toronto and go back to Chesswood Arena and skate six hours a day with all those guys. Like Gino Cavallini was there, his brother Paul. You had uh, Scott Mellonby was there. I was going to go skate with all those guys, right? And at the end of the summer, I played the summer league game, and the coach from Northeastern University who tried to recruit me the year before saw me playing there, and he, he talked to me after the game, and he goes, he says to me, um, you know, what have you been doing since the last time I saw you play? And I go, Coach, I don't know what you mean. Like, when did you see me play last? He goes, well, back in February. Now it's August, right? He goes, what have you been doing? I said, well, well what do you mean, Coach? He goes, well, your skating has improved 100% since the last time I saw you. Now, I've already, they already told me I was a good skater. This guy says I'm even better. So here I am, 19 years old, right, dumb as a sack of hammers, and he asked me what I was doing. I said, uh, hmm, I'm not sure. Oh, yeah. Uh, 250 hours of power skating might have done it. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> so so then he says to me, he goes, wow, well, it's working. You should keep on doing it. I remember being really angry when he said that because I didn't want to go back. It was too hard. And so I just said, yeah, yeah, sure, coach. And that was it. I wasn't, I wasn't going to go back. So finally, the, near the end of my, my freshman year, like I said, I was having a miserable year. And Mr. Vincent had been watching me play all year. And uh, I didn't know he was watching me. He called me up and said he had all kinds of plans to help me improve over the summer. And he was an, he's an intimidating guy. I was afraid to tell him I wasn't coming back. So I agreed to go. And then I remember hanging up the phone. I kicked my chair. I tossed my desk. I was swearing. I was so mad. My, my roommates were like, what the hell is your problem? Go, I don't want to go back to this guy. Now I have to go. So as the as months went on, I decided I was stuck. I had to go. I had no choice because I, I told him I would. And I decided, you know what? I'm going to have a mature attitude. I'm going to really try hard and make this happen. And sure enough, I, I learned a lot that summer and man, oh man, my, I'm doing it now for a living. I'm teaching skating for a living now because of Mr. Vincent, but I, um, I, I I sucked, I sucked it up and because of it, um, I'm the only guy in my class who played the national hockey league. We had, we had three guys who were drafted. I was undrafted and, and I'm the only one that played in the NHL. And, and I know it's because I'm the only one that did this every summer. The other guys didn't do it, um, so I know it's because I spent. It's, it's it was hard. Ten weeks away from home, you know. I would much rather be in Toronto because Toronto, you know, as we all know, is a center of the hockey universe, right? right. It would have made it would have loved to be in Toronto, but um, I need to be in Boston, and um, I'm glad I did it. it really that's paid true. off. Yeah.
1: No, that's wild. I mean, I just. Uh... Going back, I mean, the connection I want to make, I, I was talking with Brad Larson, now a head coach of the uh, Columbus Blue Jackets. He, he's been a guest on this on the podcast before. And he said as at, when he was in his role as an assistant coach, uh, I remember vividly him saying this, like he would talk to guys at the NHL level, right, that would come into his office and say, you know, they want more minutes, or they want this, or they want that. And so Lars would be like, well, he didn't name names, but he's like, you know, I'll, I'll give a guy direction, right, on, on what he needs to do and, and, and how he needs to do it and he's like you'll be surprised at the NHL level how many guys are still doing it in 4 weeks wow you know wow. And, he's like, yeah. he, and, he, and he's like he and and he's like he th- I mean we we don't know why like it's a bit generational it's a bit there's a few other things going on but like for me like i see the other side of that coin of like my goodness if we can teach our athletes now like right now the younger ones right like the ability to persevere and and play the long game you know, like mm-hmm. not the short game, not the instant gratification game and like dig in like you were able to dig in. Like that, that is such a massive competitive advantage now in this generation. Yeah. Um, I, I i think its it's bigger than anything else, which is why I get so passionate about the mindset side, because skills can be learned, skills can be grown. But if you want it and if you can figure out ways to devise that perspective or that plan or that strategy to kick ass when others don't want to. Yeah on your own terms, like, man, you can get there. Like I'm, I'm so, I'm so passionate about that because I mean, it even goes to that Academy thing. Now, like the way, the way parents want to plug and play everything. And I know this is almost counterintuitive me talking about this. Cause I know you have hockey programs as do I, but I try and leave space for my boys, lots of space because they need to be able to cultivate their own passion and how they want to fit in there. Right. Like if, I, if I'm taking them someplace every day and they have their skating here and their workout here and they have this here and they have that here, they just tune out. They just show up when you're supposed to. Right.
0: Yeah. Yeah.
1: But like you, for instance, right. You did. No one told you you had to go to that six hours. No one told you, you had to lift the weights like that came from you. It's probably even the wrong thing to be doing. To be honest, you probably should have right. been on the ice for six hours. You probably should have right. been working out, but you did it because you thought it was right. And that was the way that you wanted to get to where you wanted to go. And I just yeah. think kids don't have that accountability anymore to their own process.
0: Well, you're right i mean i think back to a story when i was with the maple Leafs, right so so you talk about mindsets when we were when we were in san jose everybody was dialed in and at the time when i was there we were one of the top teams in the league year in and year out and we had this mindset there like joe pavelski for example constantly asking you what you can do to get better taking video of every of every one-on-one training session and then going home and working on stuff like well his roommates are playing video games and this guy was a, just a machine right so now so now we go from there. Our our coaching staff went from there to Toronto. So I'll never forget this. It was first day of practice in Toronto, we're on the ice at 10. So me, me, Rob Zettler, and Tim Hunter got on the ice at 9.45, which is typical. Usually we got on the ice early in San Jose. We and moved you're, 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 co- you're coaching now? Is that what you're I'm, I'm, I'm the skating coach, and Hunts and Zets are the assistant coaches got in you. Toronto. They were the assistant coaches in San Jose, and I was a skating coach there too. So we all worked closely together, right? So we get on the ice, we're moving pucks to different parts of the rink where we know the guys would want them, you know, to to have them have access to pucks before practice. And so we moved them around. So now it's 9.15 and we just stand there. And, you know, the sounds of the rink, the machines and everything, that's all you heard. And we're looking at each other. (laughs) 9.30, no one out there. 9.59, the gate clicks, the first guy steps on the ice. We looked at each other and we thought, oh, my God, we're in trouble. In San Jose, there would have been half the guys, more than half out there at 9.15, working for an extra 45 minutes because practices are only about 50 minutes long. And, and guys want, you know, they put extra time in in San Jose, but not in Toronto. So one day uh, we're struggling to score goals. And I'm not going to mention this player's name, but he was struggling too. So I told him a story. I said, hey, man, when I was in Boston, there was a guy on our team named Cam Neal. He was a perennial 50-goal scorer. I was in awe of this guy. He was a right-winger, so was I. And he worked on his shot every single day. And I told him what Cam did. And I said, um, I said, um, oh, I'm sorry. What I did first is I asked, I, I, I kind of tricked him first. Before I even told him this story about Cam, I said, hey, do you, th- um, do you think you could score on 25% of your shots in practice today? He goes, yeah. I said, I bet you can. I bet you 20 bucks you can't do it. He goes, okay. So he, he goes and made a 50 minute practice. I counted every shot this guy took. And I counted the number of goals you scored. So after we, we were done, I said, Hey, well, how do you think you did? I think I did pretty good. I go, how many shots do you think you had? You know, 15, 20. Oh, nope. You had eight shots on net. You had one goal. I go, that's not 25%. <laughs> I go, you owe me $20. And I said, and then I told him the story about Cam. And I said, so what do you think? I said, so now let's just say we, we practice four days a week on average, roughly. Don't count game days. Those, those don't count. Um, so four four full practices a week, right? That's 32 shots. I said, Is that enough to improve your shot? He goes, No. I said, So uh, what do you think you should do? I should shoot pucks. I go, Yeah, exactly. So he grabs 20 pucks, he shoots 20 pucks, and then he leaves. And I go, Hey, where are you going? He goes, Oh, I got something to do. And so, anyway, long story short, he got traded later on. And um, so, for his lack of commitment, and I call it a lack of commitment, He was punished with a $15 million contract. And then when that happened, I said to myself, you know what? Like, this guy's actually pretty smart. Like, why should he put more time in when he's going to make 15 grand for doing what he's at? If I ain't broke, don't fix it. Right? Like, I can't blame Like, I couldn't do it. I couldn't do it. But I'm not going to fault the guy and be jealous of him because he can and then make $15 million. And who am I to to knock him? I mean, hey, does he want to win a Stanley Cup? Hell no. Does he want to score 50 goals? No. Does he want to make 15 million? Yeah. And that's what he's doing. So why should he change? Like, I'm the idiot. <laughs> you know, he's working smarter, not harder. <laughs> right. So yeah, that's that's the problem. If they make so much money, they get one big contract. Why why should a guy block a shot? You give me one good reason why he should block a shot and risk getting hurt. Only if he wants to win a cup, and not everybody wants to, so you can't really blame the guy. You have to find the guys that you know, the Sydney Crosby's that want to win. That's the tough part, but there's a lot of guys at this guy that don't really care about that stuff. No, cool. I know.
1: Those are the intangibles. That's want why the money. I, yeah.
0: And, and it's, the, it's the team's fault for giving these guys that kind of money because, honestly, you could have gotten the same performance out of another guy for you know for half the money. You right. know what I mean? Yeah, like yeah. You can score 12 goals a year. You can get someone to score 12. You can get three guys to score four goals each for less money. What do you need him for? Right, right. 12 goals. Are you kidding me? That's oh, my funny. God. Get four guys to score. Get four guys to score three goals each, and there you, there's your twelve. Done.
1: <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, and that's just a, that's just more power to my point of how these intangibles matter, and people don't talk about them enough. You know, yep. like of course there's those guys that are there at the NHL level, but they're like scouts again. I think more so than ever are dying for the guy that's willing to do that. You know, that's willing to go to bat and not only just for himself, but for everyone in his room, right in his locker room that wants to win hockey games. Right. Like there's been such an emphasis on skill development, like such an emphasis on skill development that I think like that the other things like those those like the grit that the sandpaper side of the game has has taken a little bit of a step back, which I think allows players to step in. And maybe your skill set isn't quite there with these other guys now, but if you can skate and if you're willing to do some dirty things, I think there's lots of teams that have room for it for you.
0: And yeah, one thing I will say, you know, from my my perspective, I I think that this this story relates back to two thousand eight. Um, I think things have changed a lot since, and I think the kids today definitely do put more into it than they did even back then. You know what I mean? I I I, I, I with the skill side of things, I really yeah. think they put a ton of time into. There's so many highly skilled players, way 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 more than there were ten years ago, twenty years ago, whatever. I do think the kids are willing to put more of that time into it now. But like you said, it is the the grit factor, maybe the IQ stuff that's not quite there. But I do think the kids definitely work harder today than they did back when I was with the Leafs in 2008. I, I believe they do. So I think that has changed and it's gone back to where things were in the eighties and nineties. And that, I think, I think that that hard work mindset is back. I really do. I do see it. All these guys are always working on something, you know, whereas before. Yeah,
1: it's true. I mean, I, I won't, I won't discredit that for sure. It's just to to me that the the part is like the, the leading, you know, like there's so many resources for these players now, right? Like that there's, you know, there is a skill station and there's this station and there's this coach and there's that coach. And it's just, it, you're surrounded by this environment, which is amazing, but it takes some of the accountability away from the player about why he's there or what he's doing. Yeah. With that. You know what I mean? Like that, That's the thing that I think is missing. And maybe I'm not wording that quite right, but it's just, it's easier for them to work harder now. Right. Like it was, it was hard before you had to find your own, you had to find your own program. You had to figure yeah. out your own thing. You know, and like, everything was, was kind of self-administered. And now it's, and now it's very hand held you know and right, uh right. and I, so i just think it's easier for guys to show up so you're not really sure where that accountability lies on a personal you know sacrifice level right
0: right right
1: but um anyways great stuff i know you got to run like this has been a great conversation i got to get my kids from school um so so we got to run but i i i love all the stories man it was great to have you on didn't even really touch on even your signing or your nhl career or any of the goals you scored there um, but maybe we'll leave that for part two, but, um, that's boring anyway. <laughs> I, I want to know about the man of the year actually too. You won two man of the year awards. What, yeah. Maybe we should end with that. What, what do those even mean? What do you have to do to win one of those?
0: Well, you know, I, at the time I didn't know. Um, so, so it's, uh, it's for community service and, and, and I, and I, I didn't even know there was, there's there any such award. The reason I got involved in community services, because when I was a rookie, um, I discovered suddenly being a pro, you don't have, you have some, tons of spare time and there's nothing to do. So one day the, the PR guy came into the locker room in Maine and asked guys to do some stuff. And they all like kind of jokingly threw stuff at him, told him to get lost. So the guy looked really sad and he left the room. You could tell he was embarrassed to even go in there and ask. So I went into the office after practice. and said, listen, man, I know you, you, know, you have a tough time. The guys give you a hard time. So I tell you what, anything that you have to going on, you know, any promotions, any of this, any of that, just come and get me and I'll do them all. And that's how it started. I did it because I felt sorry for the guy. I really did. I felt bad that he was still trying to do his job, and the guys were ripping on him. So yeah. so that's how it started. And then I started liking it. I really enjoyed being, you know, with the people, especially kids, when the kids look, you know, because I remember as a kid looking up to Howie Meeker or, or Mark Mark um, uh, Mark Napier in Toronto and chasing him around the rink trying to get his autograph. And so I just felt there; these kids were, were treating me the same way. And I thought, wow, this is so cool. So that's why I did it. And it just kept on going. Every time I'd get to a new team, I'd go right to the PR guy. Hey, listen, man, um, whatever you need done, just let me know, and I'll do it all. You know, just I'll do everything. And um, and you know, as you know, you don't get paid for most of the stuff. I did it because I really enjoyed it, and that's kind of how it happened. And next thing you know, I I was told there's some award in the league, and I'm like, all right, well, you know, that's cool, great if I did it, wonderful if not, no big deal. And and I did it again in Lake Charles and got the Man of the Year award. So it was nice to be recognized for it. But you know, honestly. You don't you don't do it for that reason. Um, yeah. Like I said, these you don't get paid for any of this stuff. I did it because I really liked it, and I thought that I could be a good role model to to the kids in our community. And um, I just did the best I could to to be that role model. That's fantastic, man! You're awesome. making a difference then, and you're
1: making a difference today. So good job with what you're doing. Uh, again, pleasure th- uh, pleasure to have you as a guest. Thanks for coming on the show, and uh, we'll we'll talk on the other side of this. Absolutely, uh, looking know, forward to. I
0: know everyone appreciated it. Well, thank you very much, Jason. I'm glad we were able to get this done. Me, I'm technolog- technologically challenged. So I'm glad my wife was here to help me figure this out. So, All right. Thanks for sticking with us till the end.
1: Graham, thanks so much for being here with us and for sharing your amazing story. Um, so much good stuff to unpack there. Like the, the entire Boris scenario just still blows my mind that here's a guy that would find, find ice, go out for free skate four to five hours a day, find a job from four till midnight that would allow him to do that type of skating and that type of training. And then when he gets home, knows that he needs to train or feels that he needs to train, knows that he needs to get stronger and get better. And he's out on his balcony from 12 a.m. to 2 a.m., pumping iron to get ready for this goal, this job that he had, which was to play D1 hockey and to be an NHL player. Um, That type of want... That type of passion uh, is so, so compelling to me. And, uh, and I love that. that's what he's all about right now. That's what he's talking with his athletes about developing that type of passion that, like, how bad do you want it? Like what are you willing to do for it? Um, and, and those are the questions that I ask my clients too. And, and sometimes sometimes there's players that need more, sometimes there's players that need a little less. But just to know that he was from that ilk, you know, that mindset of, you know what? I am going to do whatever it takes. There is a Boris somewhere right now that wants my future job and I will not let Boris have it. That's why I'm going to go and get her done. Whether it's one in the morning or whether it's getting up in the morning and going to skate for another four hours again. That's what Graham was all about. Uh, And he faced it and he proved it time and time again. He always fought through. He always battled through. He always persevered. He was always able to get it done. Um, and those were the moments that, that really galvanized who he was. And, and those were the reasons of why he got to where he got to. Uh, that type of commitment not only will improve your skill, uh, will not only improve your, your hockey development, uh, but again, it just makes you that much more of a desired commodity in the dressing room. Um, people like people that put in the work like that, that are examples for others, that are pros, so um, great guest, Graham. You're fantastic. Love what you're about. Love what you're doing. Look forward to working with you in the future. And uh, till next time, play hard and keep your head up. Just watch me